Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. It is a Tuesday full of news. Victor Blackwell by my side. Good morning. Good to be back. Good to have you. Here all week. Yeah, we're so happy about it. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, August 8th. New this morning. The East Coast cleaning up after deadly storms. Trees are down. Roads are blocked. Hundreds of thousands of people without power already. More than 300 flights are canceled. Happening today, the police chief in Montgomery, Alabama, is expected to reveal more information about that brawl that broke out on the city's riverfront. It started after a black dock worker was attacked by a group of white people. So far, no arrests, but four warrants have been issued. Right now, Los Angeles city workers are on a 24-hour strike. 11,000 workers, including sanitation workers, engineers, traffic officers, lifeguards, all headed for the picket lines. They say it's a fight for fair contracts. This hour, polls open in Ohio as voters decide whether to make it harder to amend their state constitution. It is part of a real proxy fight over abortion rights in the state. Early voting turnout has been huge. More than half a million votes already cast. You feeling lucky? I know it's early, but you know, <laughs> check the gauge. The drawing for the largest Mega Millions jackpot in history is tonight. A little more than one and a half billion dollars is the jackpot. CNN This Morning starts right now. Billy. Did you buy your lottery ticket? I was in a pool for the last uh, drawing for Mega Millions, but yeah, I'll get in this one. Yeah, that'd, be a, that'd make for a good week in New York. Yeah, <laughs> worth it. All right, we'll get to the lottery in a moment. We do begin this morning with those powerful and deadly storms that moved across the eastern United States. They've killed at least two people this morning. Hundreds of thousands are waking up in the dark. That is a tree snapped in half by the wind in Mooresville, North Carolina, while residents in Indiana's Orange County are digging out after tornado pummeled granaries, ripped off roofs there. Look at that. Nearly 400,000 people are without power from North Carolina to Tennessee. Maryland State Police say 47 people were rescued after being trapped in their vehicles for hours when those strong winds down the power lines. Now, it's just about 6 a.m. in the East Coast here, and already more than 300 fight, flights rather, have been canceled, uh, more than 700 delayed. Let's go to meteorologist Derek Van Dam now in the Weather Center. I mean, when you look at some of these pictures and the cell phone video coming in, um, you can understand how uh, this has been so challenging for people, and there is more coming. Yeah, Victor, Poppy, you know, after yesterday's hurricane force wind gusts and softball-sized hail that fell from the sky, today is going to feel like a walk in the park for the areas that were impacted most by the storm system. But the severe weather threat, not done just yet, and it's all part of the larger storm system that rocked the eastern seaboard yesterday. Take a listen. With wind gusts estimated over 75 miles per hour, the impact was immediate. Oh, my God. Holy In Mooresville, North Carolina, Tyson Winter captured this video of a tree snapping in half and falling to the ground near an apartment complex. Heavy rain, thunder, and violent winds hammered cities and towns east of the Mississippi River. By Monday night, there had been more than 400 reports of strong winds across the region. And more than a million customers were without power across 11 states. In states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Maryland, according to poweroutage.us. 
Monday's severe weather is impacting around 120 million people along the eastern U.S. From downed trees in Hartford County, Maryland, to widespread damage to homes and public buildings from upstate New York all the way down to Alabama, causing a lot of mess and spreading hazards along the way. In Washington, D.C., CNN captured this video of a man removing a large branch from a city street. This photo shows downed power lines littering a roadway in Carroll County, Maryland after a storm passed through the area. Another driver captured the chaos caused by those electric poles on Maryland's Route 140 in Westminster. Maryland State Police say over 30 vehicles were stuck in the incident, but no injuries were reported. In many parts, the storm caused extreme low visibility. In downtown Philadelphia, a live tower camera showed the magnitude of the weather conditions. In Victory Gardens, New Jersey, several residents displaced after a tree fell on a home, bringing down power lines and crashing cars. According to CNN affiliate WABC, the house was occupied at the time, but there were no injuries reported. The storms caused major travel disruptions in the skies on Monday. According to data from FlightAware, more than 10,000 U.S. flights were impacted by the severe storms Monday. Among them, over 8,500 flights were delayed and more than 1,700 canceled. All this as new weather threats are expected to develop for Tuesday afternoon with risk of severe thunderstorms in several southern states. The severe weather threat along the I-95 corridor has largely come to an end, with the exception of a marginal risk across the greater Boston metropolitan region. But a greater risk, that's a level two of five, a slight risk, extends across the Gulf Coast states and then also across the central plains today. It's just with these temperatures being so hot across the south, it doesn't take much for this severe thunderstorms to bubble over and cause some of these uh, damaging winds and large hail that we saw yesterday. Yeah, Victor, no, Poppy. no question about it. Uh, those pictures really speak a thousand words. Derek, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, All just right. hours from now, Donald Trump is set to hit the campaign trail as he faces a whirlwind of developments in multiple criminal cases against him. He'll be speaking in New Hampshire while his defense team battles with special counsel Jack Smith over a protective order in the election interference case. Now, Smith is trying to block Trump from disclosing evidence to the public before the trial. He's accusing Trump and his lawyer of wanting to try the case in the media instead of the courtroom. But Trump's team says Smith is trying to restrict his free speech rights. The judge says she's going to order a hearing this week as she prepares to decide. CNN exclusively reported that Trump's ally and former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick met with the special counsel's investigators yesterday, and the focus was Trump's alleged co-conspirator Rudy Giuliani. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, there are some new signs indictments could be imminent for the alleged scheme to, to uh, reject the results of the election. The state's ex-lieutenant governor, a contributor to CNN, you see him on this program a lot, Jeff Duncan, well, he's been subpoenaed to testify to the Fulton County Grand Jury. I'm going to certainly keep the details uh, to to myself just to protect the integrity of the investigation. But they're a very clear subpoena that, that was delivered to us uh, late last week. And uh, we will certainly answer the questions that they've got before us and answer their call to show up for this for the uh, grand jury. Also, the Trump appointed judge overseeing the Mar-a-Lago classified documents probe. That's the other federal probe against Trump. Some new developments there. That judge questioning why the Justice Department used an out-of-state grand jury in Washington, D.C. to bring the indictment. Let's bring CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance in for more. Good morning. A lot of developments. What can you tell us? 
Well, this January 6th federal case, let's look at that. That is where there have been five filings from the Justice Department and Trump's team together since Friday. That's a lot of stuff that anyone would be filing in court. And the judge there has already signaled that she is not going to be interested in much lengthy shenanigans whenever they're debating back and forth. The debate in that case right now, it's about pretrial publicity. How much can Donald Trump and his team talk publicly about the information that they're getting from the Justice Department as they work towards trial? And so the Justice Department has to turn over information, evidence to Donald Trump and his team that they don't have at this time. There's all kinds of stuff that's out there that's public that Donald Trump would have access to. There's his own information that he and his team has collected have collected as the January 6th investigation has unfurled. But in this situation, there's specific information that they haven't seen yet. And so the debate legally right now is that the Justice Department wants all of that to be locked down so that Donald Trump and others can't talk about it publicly or release it before a trial and possibly infringe upon his ability to have a fair trial. Trump's team is saying, free speech. We should be able to talk about this. We should be able to only have a small subset of that under a court order that would say you can't disclose it before trial. That's what's before the judge right now. The Justice Department came back last night in a filing and essentially said there's no law or even purpose for Donald Trump to be out there wanting to talk about evidence before trial that he hasn't seen yet. But, you know, this has been a lot of discussion back and forth where they're sharing each other's social media posts. They're talking about politics. And so the judge stepped in last night and said, We're going to have a hearing. We're going to have it before Friday. Let's figure out a time and date to do that. And so we're going to have to wait and see what the judge does here. But she is not uh, playing around here, and she does want to get this settled pretty quickly. All right, let's talk about this uh, CNN exclusive reporting that Bernie Carrick met with the special counsel uh, for five hours yesterday. Uh, What do we know about that, what they're trying to learn from him? Yeah. So his attorney was actually quite clear about what Bernie Carrick was asked about when he met with the special counsel's office yesterday for an interview over at their offices. His attorney, Tim Parlatori, came out of the special counsel's office alongside Bernie Carrick and said that they were discussing what the Giuliani team was doing, what Rudy Giuliani and others whom Bernie Carrick was working with after the 2020 election to try and find evidence of fraud, which they couldn't find, what they were doing between Election Day in 2020 to January. So the reason this matters, we've heard about all kinds of witnesses, is twofold. One, this is the first time we've seen investigative activity really after that indictment of Donald Trump last week. And on top of that, we're seeing investigative activity on a particular lane about Rudy Giuliani and what Rudy Giuliani was doing. He's one of those conspirators that's uncharged in the Trump indictment. But there's a lot of stuff to still watch, including whether grand jury activity will pick up again. All right, Caitlin Poland with the reporting. Thanks so much. Let's talk about all of these headlines. Senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington, is with us. CNN senior political analyst and anchor, John Avalon, and our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Good morning, guys. Um, Ellie, let me just start with you, because I think your take on what the Trump team is asking for here in their new filing is really interesting and important. You think what they're saying is reasonable to say you can't totally limit our, you can't muzzle our client. There is some middle ground here. So this happens sometimes in court blessedly, where both sides are actually being quite reasonable. DOJ is saying, we don't want Donald Trump to be able to take any of the discovery materials that we turn over, witness statements, evidence, and bring those public. And 
Donald Trump's team, they didn't come back and say, no, we should get to use all of it. They said, how about we just limit that to sensitive materials and we'll let you, DOJ, decide in the first instance what's sensitive and what's not. And DOJ then came back and said, the purpose of discovery is not to enable your PR efforts. It's to inform you and let you prepare for trial. So all of those are good points. And Judge Shutkin's going to have to sort through them. Look, I, I suspect she's going to try to find some middle ground here because while there have to be some limits on what you can say publicly, you can't cross the line into jury tampering or witness tampering or intimidation. You do have as a defendant the right. You can criticize your judge. You can criticize the case against you. You can criticize the prosecution. OK, but just uh, it, it is a matter of um, how you read something then, I guess, because what the Trump team is saying is when Trump put on Truth Social, you come after me, I'll mm -hmm. go after you. That was political, not going after uh, special counsel or anyone here. I mean, yeah, th that's a bit of a separate issue. His statements, his, his inflammatory statements are separate from this protective order. The, the question with this protective order yes. is what can he do with the evidence? But you're right. Can he keep saying there's a things? fine line that, that needs to be walked here. And Donald Trump, look, he's masterful at saying things that give him plausible deniability. But we all know, and more than people at this table, understand what he means. So that's the overlap, is that legal is political, political is yeah. legal for Trump's strategy. Does that make sense from a political perspective? That the Trump campaign says, don't keep everything from us, um, just the sensitive elements. Well, to, to your point about the blurring of, of the political and the legal, I mean, Trump is willing to weaponize whatever he can get his hands on. And that's why I think the context of Trump's statements and, and, and matters. You know, he has a history of using threats and intimidation. Now, whether that crosses over into witness tampering becomes the question for the judge. That's that gray area. But there's, there's every reason to question how they will use this information in the court of public opinion, because that always seems to be Donald Trump's first instinct. Mm. What is the significance of Judge Aileen Cannon? She's the one overseeing the Mar-a-Lago documents probe. Um, questioning whether it was legal to use a D.C. grand jury as part of this probe, right? They had a grand jury in southern Florida and one in D.C. Explain why that matters, given the optics of some prior decisions she had made that were in Trump's favor earlier, way earlier on in all of this after the FBI search Mar-a-Lago. Explain why people are questioning this. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of eyes on this judge. I mean, for one, she's a Trump-appointed judge, and I'm not saying that makes her biased in any way, but that is the perception, perhaps. And then you also think about the fact that she ruled in a way that was favorable to Trump that got overturned to the point of the... I think unanimously overturned. Unanimously overturned. And they specifically said, you know, this does not have any legal precedent. So you have a judge that has been seen repeatedly to be favorable to Trump. And now she is once again in the spotlight in this major way. So I think every single decision she makes, particularly decisions that are favorable to Trump or that could delay this trial till after the election, is going to be in the spotlight. Ellie, it was just two weeks ago, right, that um, the uh, Fonnie Willis in Fulton County said that the, the work is accomplished right. in that investigation. Mm -hmm. And now we've learned that the Georgia, former uh, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, is subpoenaed in the election interference case there. So which is it? Yeah. Why is he now being asked to come in and answer questions? The work is done, apparently not. I mean, if Jeff Duncan, our colleague, just got a subpoena, I guess it's not quite done yet. This could be a final stage. I mean, maybe she wasn't speaking quite literally done, done, done. Um, but this could be a finishing touch. Um, I was trying to think about what former Lieutenant Governor Duncan would have to say. I mean, remember, as Lieutenant Governor in Georgia, he was in charge of the Senate. That was one of his state constitutional duties. And there was false testimony, allegedly, by Rudy Giuliani given to the Senate. So he could be sort of a capstone witness. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I still expect her to indict very, very shortly. I don't think this is some 
unexpected speed bump that's going to push the timeline back. Why does he, do you want to speak? Well, Go yeah, ahead. this just gets back to the Rudy of it all, which is tied into CNN's exclusive reporting around around Bernie Carrick. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I, I worked with Bernie Carrick. I worked for Rudy Giuliani a long time ago. But the fact that Bernie was so embedded um, with Donald Trump this time around, um, you know, he's got a lot of access and a lot of information. And the question is whether they were, you know, proceeding in good faith, which is hard to do if you have absolutely zero evidence. But as I've said before, and I'll say again, you know, hyperpartisanship is a hell of a drug. Just one other um, issue. So after um, Trump was found liable for uh, defaming and uh, and his physical uh, attacks on E. Jean Carroll, um, he countersued her mm. for defamation for comments she made here on CNN. And now judge has dismissed that significance? Yeah, I think it's incredibly significant. It is one of these cases that we're just not talking about. Right. I mean, the fact that the judge not only said this defamation suit has no weight, but said, you know, in the, not the letter of the law, but colloquially, the term rape does apply to the situation. Yes. I think that should matter to people that yes. a judge looked at the evidence and said, Donald, this is what happened. Right, because she said on our air, asked in her response, oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did about Trump referring to that. And a judge is saying, Yes, she can say that. Yeah, and I do think it maybe opens the water for everyone to talk about this more and to take it seriously because this is not just something that is alleged at this point. A judge is saying this did happen. Yeah. And it also opens the door for people like us to say that's what happened. Thank you all very much, Jessica, John, Ellie. Appreciate it. Are coming up, new CNN reporting this morning on Ukraine's counteroffensive, the sobering updates Western allies are receiving. There's also a new warning from, a top, from top Fed officials that even more interest rate hikes could be on the way. We'll talk about that ahead. Overnight, two Russian missiles struck a city in eastern Ukraine and killed seven people, injured more than 80 others. Officials say the missiles struck within 30 to 40 minutes of one another. Now, among the injured, first responders and two children, the second missile landed as rescuers arrived to save people. We also have this new CNN reporting this morning, and it reveals that Ukraine's Western allies are receiving increasingly sobering updates about Ukraine's counteroffensive, specifically about Ukrainian forces' ability to retake significant territory. Our colleague, CNN anchor, Chief National Correspondent Jim Shudo, joins us now with his reporting. Jim, I was reading through your reporting this morning, and it's pretty startling and concerning. It is, and it's a marked change from the optimism at the start of this counteroffensive some weeks ago. But weeks in, Ukrainian forces encountering real difficulty. Russian forces have built and put up a, a, really a devastating defense there so that as they look at the status of this war, but also the chances for significant progress, Western officials receiving increasingly sobering assessments. As one senior Western diplomat told me, they're still going to see for the next couple of weeks, this is describing the Ukrainian forces, if there is a chance of making some progress, but for them to really make progress that would change the balance of this conflict, I think it's extremely highly unlikely. Uh, and, and I've been speaking to multiple officials briefed on the latest intelligence who, who, who were seeing the same picture here. A number of things, Russian defensive lines, three layers, 
tens of thousands of mines as they've been assaulting those lines. Ukrainian forces are, are incurring staggering, just staggering losses. And in response to that, uh, they have often pulled back some of their forces, uh, becoming casualty averse, understandably. Uh, and that has then limited their chances for making further progress going forward. But there's also a bigger picture issue here, realizing that just a few weeks of training, eight weeks of training in some cases on some of these new weapon systems, Western supplied tanks, for instance, uh, is not enough to instantly create new, highly capable mechanized units to successfully assault those Russian uh, defensive lines. Now, they still maintain hope that this could change, but it is a marked change, Poppy and Victor, from what I was hearing just a few weeks ago at the start of this counteroffensive. So, Jim, this sounds like it's not just about weapon support, that there's nothing that the West can give Ukraine that will change this dramatically. It's about so much more. Well, no magic bullet, as it were, no single weapon system that's suddenly going to change the, the, the status of this. And by the way, w when you do provide those new systems, it takes time. For instance, the U.S. just approving sending Ab Abrams tanks there now, but they're not going to get there to the fall. And they're still training up Ukrainian forces on those tanks. So uh, the view is there's not one system that they could send tomorrow and, and fundamentally change the nature of this battle here that this is shaping up to be a long, difficult slog with heavy losses on, on, on both sides and time pressure as well. Because as you get into the fall, the weather changes, makes it more difficult to push forward. So they're feeling time pressure to, to, to make some ground, right, but before then. Uh, but I wouldn't say pessimistic is the view, but I would certainly say a sobering view of their chances. Mm. All right, Jim Shudo with the reporting. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks. Yeah, Jim, thank you. An all-out brawl breaking out on a dock in Montgomery, Alabama. Look at that. Now multiple arrest warrants have been issued. And how this car ended up wedged into the second floor of this house in Pennsylvania. What? That's ahead. Later today, officials in Montgomery, Alabama, will hold a news conference to address what led to a wild brawl over the weekend at the city's waterfront. It happened Saturday evening when a black dock worker was trying to get a pontoon boat moved so the city's river boat could dock. But there was this huge fight that ensued when white boaters assaulted that employee. CNN's Ryan Young is following this story for us. Ryan. This video and reactions to it have been all over social media, and now there are warrants uh, issued for arrests. That's absolutely right. And of course, we have that two o'clock news conference to go through later on today. But you think about it. We talked to a witness who stresses this man was trying to do his job when he was attacked. An altercation on a Montgomery, Alabama boat dock over the weekend between a group of white boaters and a black employee escalated into a massive brawl that resulted in multiple arrest warrants. Good Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed is calling for justice to be served for attacking a man who was doing his job. It's an unfortunate incident, and um, it's something that we're investigating right now. We'll continue to go through that process uh, before we take any additional steps. It all began when the black employee was trying to clear the dock space where the Riverside cruise, the Harriet II, normally docks. The cruiser was about to return to shore and needed its space to dock. You know, just doing his job. And for some reason, they didn't like it. They didn't want to move the boat. And he decided to get physical 
with him. You can see in the video the black employee on the dock arguing with one of the men from the pontoon boat and then another shirtless white man charging at the employee and hitting him in the face. Soon after that, you can see several others join in on the attack of the dock employee. In some of the video, which has gone viral, with millions of views, people on the boat can be heard yelling for someone to go help the employee. Then at one point, you can see a young man who has jumped off the boat, swimming ashore to help the man who was being attacked. The boat got closer, the guys and the crew members and everybody got off, and that's when it happened. That's the reason why when they got off the boat, they came right to that smaller boat. And that's when more fighting ensues, turning into an all-out brawl that included several people getting hit over the head with a folding chair. Soon after, officers started trying to take control, handcuffing people in the fight. You know, they were the antagonists of the whole situation, arrest them, because unfortunately when things happen, people of color are the first to put, be put in handcuffs. Many questions remain about the melee that appear to be very much split across racial lines. We are fully engaged and we are doing all of our due diligence to find out exactly what took place. Hey, Victor, I don't know if we can underscore enough the fact of how social media has really taken this to the next level when it comes to talking about this story. People really want answers about how this escalated so quickly, why blows were thrown so many times, but they do know that a lot of people were reacting to that worker in need, the fact that he was being hit and jumped before everyone else jumped in to try to solve this. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see what happens today at that news conference. Yeah, the man was just doing his job and asking them, as he should have, to move the boat and they attacked him. Ron Young, thank you for that. So this morning, a driver in central Pennsylvania could face some serious charges after police say he intentionally crashed his car into the second floor of a home. You can see the car wedged into the side of the home. This was on Sunday. Officials say the driver was speeding, went off-road into a field, then went airborne, crashing into that house. The suspect is 20 years old, was taken to the hospital. We hope they're doing okay. Local reports say the three people in the home at the time are not hurt, thank goodness. Crews were able to remove the car and put a tarp over the hole it left behind. That's unreal. Well, is air pollution making infectious diseases more dangerous? What a new study is revealing this morning. So because of the ongoing writer's strike, the 40th season of Jeopardy plans to use recycled clues and contestants. Jeopardy showrunner announced on the Inside Jeopardy podcast that they will use a mix of material written before the strike and clues from seasons past. The show will also bring back contestants from recent seasons who lost their initial game in what it calls a second chance tournament. This morning, a top official of the Federal Reserve is warning multiple rate hikes could still be needed to get inflation back to healthy, normal 2% levels. Fed Governor Michelle Bowman said they have made progress in lowering inflation over the past year. Still, though, they have a long way to go. Last month, the Fed raised its interest rates by a quarter point, lifting rates to the highest level in 22 years. This was the 11th increase since March of 2022. It came a month after the central bank paused rates. Where do they go now? CNN Business Correspondent Rahel Solomon is with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. So that is the big debate. Where do they go now and how we all thought 
many people thought that we were sort of at the end of the rate hiking cycle. Now there is a question of how close we are. So the issue is that although we have come a long way, remember when consumer price index was at 9% last year in the June, in June, we're closer to 3%. But when you look at core inflation stripping away categories like food and energy, it is still much higher than the Fed would like. And so there is a question now of even though we have come so far, do they still do more? Uh, as you said, Governor Bowman said that more rate hikes may be necessary. She has been saying that, but I think it raised some eyebrows when she made these comments yesterday because we had hoped that we were closer to the end and we wouldn't have to have necessarily see more rate hikes. Okay, we'll see what's to come. Thank you, Rahel. Thanks, yeah, Rahel. Appreciate it. NASA's plans for an additional vehicle to take astronauts to the International Space Station will have to wait at least until 2024. That's because Boeing says Starliner will not be ready to launch until next March at the earliest. Currently, NASA is using SpaceX to ferry the crew. CNN's Kristen Fisher joins us from uh, near the Kennedy Space Center. Why the delays? Victor, it's more technical problems with the spacecraft itself and some serious ones, too, including some issues with the parachutes that are designed to slow the spacecraft uh, as it gently lands back on Earth, splashes down into the ocean. And so this is another costly, lengthy delay for Boeing. And this spacecraft, the Starliner spacecraft, is designed to do for Boeing what the Crew Dragon does for SpaceX, which is take astronauts, NASA astronauts, from right here at the Kennedy Space Center up to the International Space Station and back. Both companies were awarded contracts to do that nearly a decade ago. Since then, SpaceX has delivered ferrying about seven NASA crews to the International Space Station. But guys, so far, Boeing has not flown any crews, and they were planning to try to launch their first crewed Starliner flight this summer. But uh, just a few weeks before that launch, they found those problems. And then yesterday, Victor and Poppy, that is when uh, Boeing announced that it was going to be next March at the earliest before they could make that launch attempt. And so what this means is that NASA continues to be reliant on both SpaceX and even Russia to get its astronauts up to the International Space Station. NASA wants redundancy uh, in its operations, and so far it just hasn't been able to do that with this commercial crew program. Uh, one more thing, guys, in addition to uh, NASA you know, sending and continuing to send its astronauts up to the ISS, uh, they're trying to get astronauts back to the moon for the first time in more than 50 years, that Artemis II Artemis II crewed mission uh, is now, uh, NASA's been saying it's scheduled to launch in late 2024, but they are here. The crew is here at the Kennedy Space Center. We're going to be getting an update on that a little bit later today, going to get up close and personal to the Orion spacecraft itself. And so, guys, it'll be interesting to see if NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and some of the other uh, NASA leadership that's here today uh, is going to be giving us an update on the timeline for that as well. But as of now, late 2024 is the target. All right. We'll Poppy look forward to it. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, always exciting. The NAACP of Oakland, California, has called for a state of emergency over rampant crime. Next, you're going to hear from residents who say they're fed up and they're moving out. The fact that I am being pushed out because I emotionally can't take it anymore is horrible. Welcome back in Oakland, California, as the city's crime rate grows so much, so too are calls for action. It's not just residents sounding the alarm. The situation has grown so dire, the local NAACP chapter has called for a state of emergency. Our Kyung Law has a reporting. 
I love Oakland. It's very hard for me and my son, especially my son. So Kristen Cook is leaving Oakland, California. Be careful. After living here her entire life. I can't take it anymore. I got to the point I was too scared to leave my house. Cook blames brazen assaults and robberies in broad daylight, break-ins and home invasions across the city. As Oakland sees a surge in reported violent crimes this year compared to last. While homicides are down, robberies, burglaries and rape are all up by double digit percentages. Everyone we talk to says it doesn't matter your race, your income. Everyone seems to be a target, including carjackings like this one. No. they're carjacking people at stop sign. And my son is about to start driving. The fact that I am being pushed out because I emotionally can't take it anymore is horrible. But Tony Bird is staying. She lives with a locked front gate and five security cameras. Bird says Oakland so police recommended steel braces for residential doors and I mean, I air horns. The idea is if you set it off, your neighbor would hear it, set theirs off, and more people are alert that there's danger. Her neighbor across the street, 60-year-old retiree Dave Schneider, was shot to death in June, trimming his front tree during the day. He died as Bird and other neighbors tried to save him. I'm not looking for the perfect safe place. I'm looking for a place where the elderly women with children aren't targeted. I think we can all agree that that needs to change. And so I feel like it will change. And that's why I'm staying. Found everything you're looking for, okay? But staying open gets tougher every day for Troy Welch, owner of Laurel Ace Hardware. There's about six of them that comes in. Welch's store was robbed just hours before we met him. They went through our cash registers, and this is at my office. But you'll see they went in, they tried to take a sledgehammer to it, tried to lift it, and he's going to figure out like, they, ain't, they aren't getting into that safe. Welch says he loses 10% of his merchandise to theft. So common this year, he leaves his registers empty and open, tired of replacing them. It's more brazen, um, sometimes more violent, I think, than what it used to be. How long does it take for police to arrive? 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Is that typical? Uh, that's probably fast. I want to know. Frustration has spilled over in community meetings. Anger often directed at leadership, like the newly elected district attorney, who has been on the job just seven months. It's unreal. I'm a black man born and raised in Oakland. When I walk out the house every day, I want to be safe. So if that calls for some whoever commits the crime to be prosecuted, so be it. But we want it to be fair and just. Darren White is with the NAACP Oakland branch, which penned an open letter to their city, blaming failed leadership, the defund the police movement, and anti-police rhetoric for creating a heyday for Oakland criminals. We're not trying to say, you know, mass incarceration and arrest everyone. We want the people that are out here committing these violent crimes arrested and charged. Do we need more cops on the street? Yes, we do need more. Every, every community needs police. Flanked by partners in the city, Oakland's interim police chief Darren Allison says Oakland is taking a comprehensive approach to fighting crime. They all say that the crime feels different now. Why is that? So I think because it is pervasive, not just localized, or we may have historically seen maybe gang or group violence, I think that feeling uh, has become that it's, it's, it's everywhere. From cops to crime prevention, 
funded for 712 officers. Allison says he has 715 on staff. So what you're seeing is changes in bail, changes in sentencing. Are you saying you need tougher punishment on the back end? It's, it's everything. It's not just enforcement and punishment. I think accountability comes in many forms. Kyung Law, CNN, Los Angeles. John Avlon, Jessica Washington are back with us. Um, it more than feels different. The numbers show that in certain categories, it's up double digits. The question is the balance here of enforcing the law, getting people who need to be off the street off the street, but also not going too far in the other direction. A absolutely. But that's always the question of the balance. And the point is the balance seems to be decidedly off. I mean, what you saw in that is, is a city that is breaking down. And when that happens, that unleashes all sorts of focus. We forget that I think sometimes that public safety is a fundamental civil right. And the fact that that NAACP branch came out and spoke harshly about this is out of control. We need to just stop this revolving door approach to justice. There needs to be sentencing and prosecutions in, in, in a way that's consistent with equal rights and justice. Yeah. Um, that's not too much to ask. And, and you see these stats, you gotta take action because it's unleashing massive forces. You can't effectively have situations where, for example, you know, mass theft and going into stores and you know, grabbing things under $1,000 is effectively decriminalized. But explain why that matters. So John's yeah. pointing to the fact that the law reads now, I don't know if it's state, if it's just California or if it's national, but that it's, if it's under $1,000, what'd you say? Under $1,000. I believe under it's California or it's, it's per store right. because it's worth the hassle of the prosecution. Under $1,000, if you steal $999 of stuff, it's a misdemeanor. Correct. It's not, and, and a lot of people are pointing to things like that and saying, this is leading to it just continuing. Yeah, and I think that you, we can look at specific laws and say, okay, maybe this one needs to change. But I think the overwhelming message is what happened here was the defund movement. And what happened was getting police off the street. I think that's what we saw in the NAACP letter. And the thing is, that's not what happened. Oakland has continuously increased their police budget. And so and you can also you can quibble with it didn't match up with inflation. There's different arguments about whether or not they increased it enough, but they increased it by 18 percent from 2019 to 2022. They increased it again this year. So this isn't an issue of we are taking police off the street. There were no layoffs in the police department in this year's budget. And, you know, I think the argument is they actually did decrease community violence intervention program funding in this year's budget. So are there things that we could be doing that we are not doing? We are funding the police in Oakland, and yet there is still crime. So are there other methods that aren't this trade-off that we could be investing in? Well, look, it, it, I think it's a 2% increase over this calendar year. But to your point, I think it's, it's about the larger movement that's associated with that disastrous term, defund the police. It's about cops backing off. It's mm -hmm. about feeling that prosecutions aren't going forward. Um, that, you know, that there is this revolving door uh, issue approach to crime and punishment, which you heard people in the piece complain about, at, including so the police. You officer. can look at places like Camden, New Jersey, mm -hmm. that have completely restructured, redone their police force. I was reporting there. I mean, this was yep. years ago, yep. but it was incredibly successful saying this isn't working in a complete overhaul. And look, this is an area that should be open to innovation, but you need to separate intentions from results. And if public safety is dropping down, if people are feeling unsafe, not as a matter of perception, but hard reality, as you heard that woman crying in the street because she has to leave Oakland, because people are getting shot, you know, out in broad daylight, they're getting their cars stolen. That demands action, or you are breeding reactionary forces politically. This is just about actually public safety. This is about protecting people, and it shouldn't be politicized. All right. 
I would have, yeah. Go ahead, quickly. Oh, sorry, I just should say that, you know, it is true that this is about action, but I would think that the folks who are saying we have tried policing over and over again, and our community still feels unsafe. We've increased the budget and are saying, what about these other methods that we haven't tried, we haven't invested in? Those are not people who don't care about safety. Those yeah. are people that care deeply about their community. And I think sometimes we pinpoint those as individuals who do not care about keeping the streets safe. And that's just not borne out. All right. Jessica, John, thank you. Yeah. And great reporting by Kyung. Our thanks to her. Meantime, new CNN reporting shows House Republicans really eyeing seriously an impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden in the fall. And more than 300,000 Americans are waking up in the dark this morning after a powerful round of storms moved through the East Coast. The impact on flights today. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Major League Baseball is handing down the punishments for benches clearing brawls on Thursday, or Saturday rather, the White Sox Guardians game. Uh, Chicago's Tim Anderson received a six game suspension and a fine for trading punches with Cleveland third baseman Jose Ramirez. He received a three-game ban and a fine. Both players are appealing and will still be allowed to play until a final decision is made. In total, MLB punished eight people Monday, including both managers, who each received a one-game suspension and a fine. The White Sox and Guardians do not play each other again this season. CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. Top of the hour. Victor Blackwell by my side. Good morning. Day two of five. Day Good to be two here. of five. Is that all I get? You're five later this month. Then you're going to Beyonce. Yeah, I'm going to Beyonce, and then I'll be back. (laughs) Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, August 8th. New this morning, the East Coast cleaning up after deadly storms. Trees are down, roads are blocked. Hundreds of thousands of people without power this morning. Already more than 300 flights canceled. Happening today, the police chief in Montgomery, Alabama, is set to reveal more information about the brawl that broke out on the city's riverfront. It started after a black dock worker was attacked by a group of white people. So far, no arrests, but four warrants have been issued. And right now, Los Angeles city workers are on a 24-hour strike. 11,000 workers, including sanitation workers and engineers and traffic officers and lifeguards, all headed for the picket line. They say it's a fight for fair contracts. Polls open now in Ohio. Voters there deciding whether to make it harder to amend their state's constitution. It's a basically proxy fight over abortion rights in the state. That's part of it. Early voting turnout has been huge. More than half a million votes already cast. And if you are feeling lucky, and you know what? Even if you're not, the drawing for the largest Mega Millions jackpot in history is tonight. A little more than a billion and a half dollars up for grabs. If you're not feeling lucky, just spend the two bucks anyway. (laughs) CNN This Morning starts right now. I am writing myself a note. It's worth, just put the 20 bucks in. Buy lottery ticket. You don't even have to pick your numbers. It's tonight, right? Okay. To do, I will do that. Maybe I'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Would you come back if you want? Yes. Oh, okay. You're not. No. (laughs) A billion and a half dollars? Yes, I would. Okay. I like what I do. I like it too, but (laughs) now I'm a billionaire. All right, I hear you, my friend, Victor. Uh, Let's get to the powerful storms ripping across the East Coast. They've been deadly. We know this morning at least two people have died. Hundreds of thousands of people, though, waking up to power outages this morning. Oh, my God. 
That is a tree snapped in half in North Carolina while Indiana residents are digging out after a tornado touched down there. Maryland State Police say 47 people were rescued after being trapped in their vehicles for hours. Look at this. This is uh, the people who were trapped between these power lines. Today already, nearly 900 flights have been delayed, more than 300 canceled. Here's a look at long lines at Reagan National Airport. You can barely tell through the maze where the line starts and ends. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam is in the Weather Center. Uh, it was just awful yesterday. Still more coming today, but yesterday, just all across the country, people in bad shape. Yeah, Victor Poppy, after yesterday's hurricane force wind gusts and softball-sized hail that dropped from the sky, Today is going to feel like a walk in the park, especially for the areas that were hit hardest across the mid-Atlantic. But the severe weather threat is not over just yet. It's all part of the larger storm system that rocked the eastern seaboard yesterday. Take a listen. With wind gusts estimated over 75 miles per hour, the impact was immediate. Oh, my God. Holy in Mooresville, North Carolina, Tyson Winter captured this video of a tree snapping in half and falling to the ground near an apartment complex. Heavy rain, thunder, and violent winds hammered cities and towns east of the Mississippi River. By Monday night, there had been more than 400 reports of strong winds across the region. And more than a million customers were without power across 11 states. In states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Maryland, according to poweroutage.us. Monday's severe weather is impacting around 120 million people along the eastern U.S., from downed trees in Hartford County, Maryland, to widespread damage to homes and public buildings from upstate New York all the way down to Alabama, causing a lot of mess and spreading hazards along the way. In Washington, D.C., CNN captured this video of a man removing a large branch from a city street. This photo shows downed power lines littering a roadway in Carroll County, Maryland after a storm passed through the area. Another driver captured the chaos caused by those electric poles on Maryland's Route 140 in Westminster. Maryland State Police say over 30 vehicles were stuck in the incident, but no injuries were reported. In many parts, the storm caused extreme low visibility. In downtown Philadelphia, a live tower camera showed the magnitude of the weather conditions. In Victory Gardens, New Jersey, several residents displaced after a tree fell on a home, bringing down power lines and crashing cars. According to CNN affiliate WABC, the house was occupied at the time, but there were no injuries reported. The storms caused major travel disruptions in the skies on Monday. According to data from FlightAware, more than 10,000 U.S. flights were impacted by the severe storms Monday. Among them, over 8,500 flights were delayed and more than 1,700 canceled. All this as new weather threats are expected to develop for Tuesday afternoon with risk of severe thunderstorms in several southern states. Well, that's what 600 reports of severe weather uh, looks like. And today's severe weather threat largely coming to an end along the eastern seaboard. The only exception near the greater Boston area, but it's just too hot across the deep south. That's where we focus our attention, that and along with the central plains. That's our chance of large hail damaging winds. Can't rule out a tornado for those locations. But for the east coast, we are in cleanup mode for the rest of the day. Right Victor, there. Bobby? Appreciate it. Thanks for the reporting. Okay. Well, behind the scenes on Capitol Hill, many House Republicans are saying privately that it is a foregone conclusion that President Biden will face an impeachment inquiry this fall. That's according to our Manu Raju. 
Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been insisted to reporters a decision has not been made yet to open a formal inquiry and evidence is still being gathered. And here's what he said last night on Fox. I raised it on this show not long ago that because the actions of the Biden administration withholding information that that would rise to the level where we would need impeachment inquiry to give the strength of the Congress to get the information that we need to give to the American public and follow through on our constitutional authority. All that right, is exactly what we're doing and that's exactly what we'll continue to do. Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. Manu, good morning to you. What, what are you hearing on the Hill about this uh, potential inquiry? Yeah, even though Speaker McCarthy says that they have not made an official decision to launch an impeachment inquiry, the belief among Republicans that I have talked to, that my colleagues also have talked to, is that it is almost certain that they will go down this route in the fall because of what they believe is a pay-to-play scheme involving Joe Biden when vice president with his son Hunter Biden while with his Hunter, Hunter Biden's business dealings. Now, they have not been able to corroborate that very provocative claim, but they've been able to show some allegations about Joe Biden's ties with his son, namely about uh, that came out during a private interview last week with Hunter Biden's business partner showing that Joe Biden was on the speakerphone some 20 times with Hunter Biden and his foreign business partners back in the time when Joe Biden was vice president. Now, that same business partner, Devin Archer, said that no business was actually discussed in those 20 or so interactions. But Republicans believe this is all underscores the effort by Hunter Biden to use his dad's name as leverage to try to score foreign business dealings. And Republicans say they're going to try to prove that Joe Biden was influenced in some way by those actions and may have profited from them. But they have not come up with that evidence yet to that would be central to their inquiry. Now, what they are saying is that they need to launch an impeachment inquiry in order to obtain some of that very critical information that could be difficult to obtain unless they are in that aggressive posture, oversight posture when an impeachment inquiry. And leading part of that push is House Oversight Chairman James Comer, who held, whose committee held that interview with that Hunter Biden business partner last week and indicated to us over the weekend in Kentucky that more interviews were to come as they tried to get more bank records to try to corroborate their claims. This next week, we will release more bank records. We'll do our third bank memo, where we uh, show some uh, interesting wire transfers and some suspicious bank activity that I think the American people will have a lot of questions about. Now, Republicans are also telling us that if they don't move forward with an impeachment inquiry in the fall, it will essentially clear Joe Biden of any potential wrongdoing. It could potentially boost him in the, his run for re-election here. Democrats believe this is all an effort to run interference for Donald Trump as he faces his own criminal charges and try to hurt Joe Biden, even as they have yet to corroborate their most salacious allegations, the White House and Democrats pushing back on all of this. So, but Republicans expect a big fight and a big focus on this issue and a potential impeachment inquiry this fall, guys. But it puts McCarthy's members in districts that Biden won in quite a pickle. And does he have the votes to go forward with it? Yeah, that is the big question here because McCarthy, as we know, has a very narrow House majority. He can only afford to lose four Republican votes 
on any party line vote. And the way that would probably work is there would be a vote to formally open up an impeachment inquiry. That means that that would be a first vote that would likely go along party lines. He cannot afford to lose more than four members in that vote. And then they have the investigation. And then if they decide to go down that route, they would draft articles of impeachment to try to, re- try to accuse the president of committing high crimes or misdemeanors in office, a very serious charge. Only three other presidents in history have gone, have been faced impeachment. Donald Trump, of course, was impeached twice by the House. But in talking to some members in those swing district guys, they are not 100% there. One of them is Don Bacon of Nebraska, right. who told me yesterday he wants an investigation first before they go down that route. He's not begging an impeachment inquiry But if they do go down that route, it'll put those members also in a tough spot. They do have primaries to worry about back home, which is one reason why some Republicans believe ultimately they will impeach the president, because once they go down that road, it's hard to pull back. It could also be a rallying cry for Democrats with the president uh, suffering with some enthusiasm uh, issues uh, from his supporters. Manu Raju for us on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Great reporting, Manu. Just hours from now, Donald Trump is set to hit the campaign trail. He's facing a whirlwind of developments in the multiple criminal cases against him. He's going to speak today in New Hampshire, where his defense team, while his defense team battles with the special counsel, Jack Smith, in the election interference case. And this developing overnight, the judge is preparing to schedule a hearing to decide whether to issue a protective order in that case. The special counsel is trying to block Trump from disclosing evidence to the public and potentially undermine the case before it even goes to trial. Meantime, in Atlanta, Georgia, there are new signs indictments could be imminent for the alleged scheme to overturn Joe Biden's victory in that state. The state's lieutenant governor and CNN contributor Jeff Duncan, you see him often on this program, well, we've learned he's been subpoenaed to testify to the Fulton County Grand Jury. I'm going to certainly keep the details uh, to to myself just to protect the integrity of the investigation, but they're a very clear subpoena that, that was delivered to us uh, late last week, and uh, we will certainly answer the questions that they've got before us and answer their call to show up for this for the uh, grand jury. Also, the judge in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case is adding a new wrinkle to this. She is questioning whether it's legal for the Justice Department to use that out-of-state grand jury in D.C. for this ongoing probe of documents. Now, as the judge in the election interference case weighs a decision, Jack Smith is still busy pursuing witnesses. CNN has learned that special counsel investigators met with Bernie Carrick yesterday. Carrick, as you know, is the former disgraced New York City police commissioner. He's close with Rudy Giuliani and coordinated with him in the weeks and months after the 2020 election. Here's what Carrick's attorney, Tim Parlatore, told CNN about the meeting. It was mostly about, you know, all the efforts uh, in between the election and January 6th of what the Giuliani team was doing and really just going through all of the efforts that they took at the time to to take all the complaints of fraud, see what they could do to chase him down. Apollatore added that he does not think that Giuliani will be indicted. Let's go now to CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, lots of big questions here about this indictment, including... What happens with Giuliani and the other uh, unindicted co-conspirators? Yeah, Victor, we learn more information about this case every day, but three big questions to me persist. First of all, what will happen with the co-conspirators? Now, in this indictment, Jack Smith identifies, not by name, but by abbreviation CC, co-conspirators one through six in the indictment. Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, Jeffrey Clark, Kenneth Chesbro, and we still don't know exactly who CC6 is. Now, the use of this term, co-conspirators, is really significant by prosecutors because you only use that term if you believe you can prove that these people were in on the crime 
and part of it. But the big question, of course, is will they be charged? Now, we know, because we just heard from Tim Parlator, who represents Bernie Carrick, that he went into the grand jury. He was questioned about co-conspirator one, Rudy Giuliani. Parlator says he doesn't think Rudy Giuliani is going to be charged. Tim knows this case better than I do, but I'm going to respectfully disagree with him on that. We will see. One of the big questions, if Jack Smith does choose to indict any or all of these co-conspirators, does he include them, add them into the, the existing indictment against Donald Trump, or does he bring a separate indictment? If it's my decision, I'm doing it separate, because if you add them into the Donald Trump indictment, you are setting the stage for this thing to be pushed back and delayed. We know that's a continuing strategy of Donald Trump and his team to get it pushed back past the election. So what are these co-conspirators going to do? Are they going to be charged? Are they going to cooperate? we got to watch and see. Another mystery uh, involves a person closest to the former president. Yes, international man of mystery, Mark Meadows. Where has he been? Who knows? Where is Mark Meadows? Former chief of staff to Donald Trump. We know where he was. He was by Donald Trump's side, literally in the weeks and days leading up to January 6th, on January 6th. And after, let's start with what we know for sure about Mark Meadows. Forget about the speculation for a moment. He has testified in the grand jury. If you look through the indictment, there are a few, not many, but a few references to Mark Meadows. It doesn't say his name, but it says chief of staff. In one instance, he's told by people in Georgia there's no evidence of fraud here. And in another instance, Meadows sort of relays that back to Donald Trump, says, hey, our investigation here is not finding fraud. That's not a problem for Mark Meadows. If anything, maybe that's good for Mark Meadows. However, there's another section of the indictment where Mark Meadows says, quote, we just need to have someone coordinating the electors for states. That refers to the fake elector scheme. That's going to be a problem for Mark Meadows. So what will become of him? Will he flip? Will he remain a witness in some capacity or will he just sort of slide out of this? And then, of course, the question you you referenced earlier, when? The timing of it all. It's all about when. There is going to be a court appearance on August 28th in front of the judge. She likely will set a trial date. Let's take a quick look at 2024 because this is all important. The election is in November. There is no realistic way we're going to have a trial this close to the election. I think we can safely write off October and September. We already have the hush money case Scheduled to start in March. You can bet that's going to carry through April. We already have the Mar-a-Lago case scheduled to start in May. You can bet that's going to carry through July. This January 6th case, Trump's team has said it's going to take nine months to try. I think that's high. Even if you cut it in half, there's not a four-month opportunity here to do it. Now, these can move. Let's keep in mind trial dates are fluid. So we got to see there's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, certainly are. Ellie, thanks for helping us understand it. All right. Thanks, Victor. Let's talk about all this. CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon is back with us and politics reporter at Semaphore, Shelby Talcott. Good morning, guys. Good to have you, Shelby. Welcome to the table. Um, what, what do you make of what, what we just went through in terms of all of these headwinds and the Justice Department's argument that really Trump should be very limited in his speech? They pointed to what Trump has put out there about Mike Pence. It, they actually pointed to the five interviews John Lauro, his lawyer, did on, on, Sun, on the Sunday morning shows as part of this. Yeah, I don't think it's surprising. The DOJ does not want this tried in the court of public opinion. They don't want the material that they give for discovery to be just widely given to the public, as that's not what it's intended to do. But I also think it's really important, whatever, however this decision ends up, is really important for Trump's team, because that's exactly what Trump's team wants to do. You've seen every speech that Trump has done. He brings in the legal stuff, and his team will tell you All of this is intertwined. The legal stuff, the campaign, it is all one and the same. And so Trump's team really wants to fight hard to keep being able to effectively say whatever they want regarding all of these. They're sort of asking for a middle middle ground in terms of what 
their client should be able to say. Yeah, but I think the middle ground that they're asking for is quite broad, and that's why the DOJ is is pushing back on it. I mean, lawyers would probably know better, but that's just my my read on the situation. Lawyer. So, so the, the cleverness of Trump's team response here is they've said, we only, we propose that you keep sensitive information, not from us, but that we're not allowed to talk about only sensitive information. But Trump's team has said, and we're going to let you, DOJ, tell us what you consider sensitive information. We may challenge that, but they're really sort of punting the ball in a way that I think is smart back to DOJ. Say, you tell us what's sensitive, and we'll agree that there could be limits on our ability to talk about that particular evidence. Is he even going to follow the rule if it comes? Once he gets up on the stage at one of these rallies and he starts riffing about, you know, the anger that he has about the special counsel and the cases, is this something you expect Trump will leave and abide by? Why would anyone think he would abide by that? I set you up, John. Uh, uh, right. I mean, <laughs> let's just be real. This is, this is the problem. This is the issue. You know, when you put it out a statement, you go after me, I go after you. There's a clear pattern of threats and intimidation being core to Donald Trump's uh, communication style that bleeds over into the legal efforts that, that we saw we saw play out on, on January 6th itself in the attempt to intimidate people to not certify the election. Mm. So that's where you got to get real and take this off the dusty shelf and, and actually deal with the real world implications, which is what we're dealing with as a democracy right now. All right. Right now, the polls are open in Ohio. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Uh, voters will decide whether they can still amend the state constitution with just a simple majority. That's the way it's been uh, since Millard Fillmore's presidency. <laughs> but the Republican State House wants to change that by requiring amendments to get 60% of the vote. Instead, 50% plus one uh, of the vote. Why now? Well, one reason is access to abortion. That's one. Uh, it's not on the ballot today, but it will be in November. And raising the threshold will make it harder to pass an abortion rights amendment. Uh, still, some Republicans say this is about protecting the state from special interests. But if you think a summertime special election in an off year with no candidates on the ballot uh, would have a low voter turnout, look at these lines. Mm -hmm. More than a half million Ohio's, Ohioans rather, have cast early ballots. John, I give this back to you, um, that this is about not just the special interest, but abortion, your view on what we're watching in Ohio. This is about direct democracy. This is about representative democracy. This is about majoritarian democracy. Let's step, take a step back. In the redistricting uh, system that uh, the Republicans overrode, there was a ballot initiative passed just a few years ago that enshrined in the Constitution a balanced bipartisan representative redistricting system that was utterly ignored and basically a partisan power grab. That's also what played out with regard to this, uh, you know, six-week abortion ban. And this is an attempt to change the rules in the middle of the game by Republicans in order to stave off an attempt to enshrine abortion rights in reaction to that bill passage. The larger backdrop is there's an attempt to overturn majoritarian democracy by partisan special interests. Mm -hmm. And that's why this demands national attention today. You know, John, uh, yeah, and for a long time leading yes. up to this, what John brings up, direct democracy, I mean, what Dobbs did overturning Roe versus Wade was say states. It's up to states. And people in states took action through direct democracy. Mm -hmm. And what this ballot initiative does, right, is that it makes it a lot. It's not just a simple majority vote change to 60 percent. It's also a change in how they can gather the votes on the ballot and the fact that they have to do it not in half the counties, but in all 88 of them. So it's, it's a significant hurdle to make changes to the state constitution. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I, I'll also note just more broadly, as we're ramping up with 2024, the abortion issue in particular is is hugely important. 
uh, not just for Democrats, but for Republicans. And we've seen Republicans really struggle on their messaging with the abortion issue for that exact reason, because the country is so split on things. And, and you know, there was the overturn of Dobbs. And now there's the question is, well, what do we do now? And so Republicans have not really figured out an easy solution that makes the majority of the country happy. And so they're really struggling anytime they get asked on this issue. You know, we, we knew this was going to be the post-Dobbs reality, and here we are a year and change out from it. But it hasn't quite played out exactly as we expected, because I think the standing presumption was all the red states are going to are going to say no, you know, take away abortion rights. They all haven't the all. They haven't. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the point. Like because, people, because, because of, of direct democracy, like because of what, what we're talking about here, people have said not so fast. We're not sure we're in on this. And that's that's one of the virtues of direct democracy. But the attempt to change those standards, yep. to roll back direct democracy and majoritarian rule is a direct insult to the alleged the states are going to figure it out from themselves impulse that Dodge allegedly opened the door to. So it's not that simple. It is an attempt to rig and push back uh, direct democracy and majoritarian democracy. Yeah. The states are going to figure it out, but we might change the rules. If you change the rules, that's not the states figuring out and even playing field. Thank you, guys. Really um, important discussion. We appreciate it. We'll watch Ohio very closely tell you what happens. New CNN reporting this morning also reveals that Ukraine's Western allies are receiving increasingly sobering updates on Ukraine's counteroffensive. Have you seen this video? It is all over social media. This brawl on the dock in Montgomery, Alabama. What we could hear from officials later today. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Overnight, two Russian missiles struck a city in eastern Ukraine, killing seven people, injuring 80 others. Officials say those missile strikes happened within 30 to 40 minutes of one another. The second missile striking right as first responders arrived to help people. There's also this new CNN reporting this morning on Ukraine's counteroffensive just weeks into it. Western officials tell our colleague Jim Shudo they're concerned the assessment of the battle to regain territory is increasingly sobering. Illinois Congressman Mike Quigley just recently returned from meetings in Europe with U.S. commanders training Ukrainian forces, told CNN, quote, our briefings are sobering. We're reminded of the challenges they face. This is the most difficult time of the war. Joining us now, retired Army Major Mike Lyons. Do you agree with Quigley's assessment? I mean, not he was meeting with the people that are training mm-hmm. the Ukrainians. Yeah. You know, so it's two months to the day since the counteroffensive started. They've gained maybe 10 square miles or so, not a lot. But, you know, attacking frontal fortifications reinforced by minefields without air superiority, not a lot of times in history you can show that's been successful. Um, I think we've set the expectation high for what the Ukrainian military can do, um, but they're not fighting a combined arms fight. They're not fighting a counteroffensive the way that historically shown has been successful. Not their fault, um, but they're doing the best they can. So I, I'm, I'm glad to see we've got some sober reality with regard to the situation there. Abrams tanks will be there in the fall, so that will be obviously uh, helpful. But as Jim's report- that it's not about hardware. It's yeah. not about uh, weapon support. So how much can that help? You know, because the Abrams tanks are, are going to get there at a time when the rainy season is going to start. And the way tanks are deployed effectively is when they're used for shock effects. And if you're Russia, you're seeing where those tanks are going to go because that's exactly where the offensive uh, priority is going to be at that time. And what you'll do is you'll move troops there to counterbalance them. There's only 31 tanks or so showing up. They're not going to be that much of a difference maker. There's huge logistical tooth-to-tail ratio that goes with those tanks. Um, 
Will they make a difference? They're going to allow more Ukrainian crews to survive, but those tanks still don't have any more capability to, to go through minefields or do other things. So, again, without the combined arms, without the air superiority, I think this is still going to remain a stalemate. It's a real question about what Ukraine's going to need from the U.S. in mm -hmm. terms of additional funding, additional weapons, et cetera. Right. And the U.S. public sentiment on it is changing. There is really striking uh, reality in this new CNN polling. What it shows is that a majority of Americans disapprove of another support package for Ukraine. Forty-five percent approve it. Should Congress authorize more funding to Ukraine? Fifty-five percent oppose it. Yeah, this is what Vladimir Putin wants to happen. If he hangs on to this land that he has right now, that he's seized illegally, um, gets through the, 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 the fall and then the winter. We're now into next spring here and our political season, presidential elections running. Uh, who knows what the politicians will say? Because this is really what, what, what uh, you know, where the money's going to come from. The Ukraine government needs a commitment from NATO, from the United States, saying we're all in for however long it takes. The problem is that doesn't jive with our political cycles here. And the United States leads the way with all these economic packages as well as the military packages. So um, that's what Putin is hoping that will happen, that we'll lose. Interest. So you're saying if the U.S. fails to authorize further funding, you think its Western allies will follow? I'm not sure the Western allies have the capability um, and capacity to make the difference that Ukraine is going to need in order to uh, sustain itself. Uh, they need Patriot missiles. They think they need things that only come from the United States and U.S. defense contractors. And you can't crank that machine up quick enough to get some of that material there at the time. Look at the tanks. I mean, we're the, the only we only took us took us eight months to get 31 tanks to Ukraine. They need 400 if they want to have any kind of offense. So we learned overnight uh, a detail about new textbooks in Russia. Yeah that will address the invasion of Ukraine as the uh, addition of new regions to the Russian Federation, just kind of a light brush ignoring, not even using the special military operation language that they've used on the global scale. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, they're betting that this is going to end with a new border, that Russia is going to take that land that they have. I mean, they, uh, they had that land that they controlled since 2014, mostly in Crimea and the Donbass region. And now they control that uh, eastern portion of the Dnepro River. It creates now a, a, a DMZ, a border situation of, of two hostile countries, if this thing stops tomorrow, if the Russians decide from a military perspective. The other thing, though, it does put a little bit of a problem with Ukraine joining NATO. We can't bring a country into NATO that has a border conflict. So this is one way that you know Putin will potentially keep NATO uh, from U Ukraine by saying there's going to always be a border skirmish here, and, and then this is all you know, part of their plan. Yeah. Major Mike Lyons, thank you. Thanks. Nice to have you at the table. We usually get you in Washington or at the wall. Thanks yeah. for being with us. Former Vice President and Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence will be on the debate stage. She's met the donor threshold. That's according to his campaign. Our next guest just got one step closer to joining him on that stage. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez will join us live. New this morning, Mike Pence will be on the debate stage two weeks from tomorrow. The former vice president's campaign says it hit the 40,000 unique donor threshold to qualify for the first Republican presidential debate. Pence, who had already met the polling criteria, will join the seven other candidates who appear to have qualified. For those who have not, the time is running out. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez also says that he just hit the donor threshold and puts him a step closer to making it on the stage. Suarez, who announced his White House bid in June, has gotten creative to attract donors, offering $20 gift cards in exchange for donations of as little as a dollar. 
Also, raffling tickets to see Lionel Messi play for the Inter-Miami and accepting donations in Bitcoin. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez joins us now. Mr. Mayor, good to have you on this morning. Let's start with what it takes to get on the stage. You at uh, 1% in an Iowa poll. You've got to get uh, either three national polls or two national and one additional state. Looks like you got that additional state poll. How do you get to at least 1% to be on that stage on the 23rd? Well, it's moments like this and opportunities like this that give me an opportunity to showcase my record in Miami and my vision for the country. Uh, in Miami, uh, I had followed three simple rules for prosperity. We kept taxes low and we saw double digit growth. We grew last year 14%. We kept people safe. Last year, we had the lowest per capita homicide rate since 1964. This year, we're 37% below that number. That is very different from what's happening in other cities across America. And then we leaned into innovation. We have the lowest unemployment in America, the highest wage growth, uh, and the highest tech job growth. That is a recipe for American prosperity. And my vision for the future of this country is to get the deficit under control, fix immigration once and for all, and focus on the rising threat of China as an economic and national security threat. That is the challenge of our generation. And we need a president that's ready on day one, that has the background and has the ideas on how to chart a path forward into this uncertain future. So if the message gets you on stage, why the gimmicks? And you're not the only candidate who's doing it. You're not the first to do it. But the purpose of the threshold from the RNC or the thresholds is to determine that there's some modicum of support for a candidate to be on that stage. The polling, you get the 40,000 unique donors. If, if a donor gives you a dollar to get a $20 gift card, that doesn't say anything about their support for you. It's just that they're smart enough to take up a 20 to one return on investment. Yeah, no, I understand. And I think, look, uh, I was a late entrant into the race. I've only been in the race uh, for about 60 days. Um, I'm probably the, one of the least known of, of the top eight or nine candidates that are running. So certainly given this criteria, which has never been imposed before, um, and, and the understanding of how important it is, as you've indicated, to make it to the debate stage, because you're going to be one of nine with, you know, obviously not equal time, but, you know, and a, a great opportunity to, to articulate the, the message that I just articulated on your show. Um, it's it's incredibly critical to a campaign to have that opportunity, particularly to a candidate uh, who is not as well known as some of the other candidates. So we've obviously uh, had to do what we've had to do to get to that threshold. And uh, and, and we're going to continue to do what we need to do to get to that debate stage over the next couple of weeks. Governor Ron DeSantis uh, has acknowledged now, in his words, of course, uh, former President Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Do you agree that he lost a, and I'll add this, free and fair 2020 presidential election? Yeah, I mean, I've been on the record on this issue before. Uh, I believe that uh, that the election uh, was decided properly. Um, I do, I never saw enough evidence uh, of any particular state to, to convince me at least uh, that, that any of the challenges uh, had merit. Um, but, you know, obviously the former president has the right to challenge uh, the elections as others have challenged uh, the elections. And it, it, the one thing is, it's pretty clear to me is that he believed uh, that, uh, that the election was not uh, validly contested. So you so, don't believe that he uh, knew that he lost the election? 
Oh, I think he's been very consistent uh, about his beliefs. Uh, I, I've never heard him. And sometimes I've actually wondered, you know, uh, uh, you know, why he's he stuck to it so much. And uh, but it's been clear to me that he's been consistent in his belief that the election was stolen, uh, despite whatever advice he may have been given uh, from people that were close to him that were advising him otherwise. He obviously had a cadre of people that were advising him one way. And I think part of the challenge in the indictment is going to be proving that he actually knew um, that that the election uh, was was not legitimately decided. Let me ask you about some of uh, CNN's reporting on Manu Raju reporting the House Republicans uh, say privately that it's a foregone conclusion that this fall uh, they will begin an impeachment inquiry uh, against President Biden. Uh, do you support that? Look, I think there's a tremendous amount of frustration uh, on the part of Republicans where they've seen uh, you know, sort of the Justice Department uh, uh, in their minds uh, being weaponized as a political tool. And I think this is sort of a reaction to that. Um, you know, I, I wish we wouldn't be talking about impeachments of either uh, the current president or the former president when he was president. I want to be focused on. But we are, Mr. Mayor, we are country. talking about impeachment. On, I'm going to go back to the question because we're low on time. Do yeah, you support an impeachment listen, inquiry against the president? Yeah. Listen, you're the moderator. You get to ask the questions, but I also get to answer the questions. And for me, as I travel the country, uh, what people are talking about is not impeachments. People are talking about the fact that they're starting school and inflation is out of control and it's making it harder for them uh, to be able to make ends meet. They're talking about the fact that, you know, 300 people die on average every day from fentanyl overdoses. Uh, they're talking about the fact that homelessness uh, and crime is rampant in their cities. Those are the issues that people are talking about. So obviously you get to ask uh, the questions that you want, but I I get to also answer them in the way that I want, focusing on the things that I want to focus on with the limited time that I have. So uh, respectfully, uh, that's what I like to focus on. OK, uh, Mayor Francis Suarez, I, I asked the question. I didn't get an answer, but I thank you for your time. Thank you as well. That was really interesting. I thought one thing that struck me is he said I'm one of the least known of the sure. candidates so far, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is what Mitt, you know, Mitt Romney has been arguing like some other Republicans who, whose pro road doesn't look as strong are going to mm. need to think about whether they stay in. We'll see if he makes a debate stage and where it goes from yeah, there. Yeah, Chris Sununu says, everybody get in. The question is, when do you get out? Yeah, that's right. a great point. Yeah. Good interview. Thanks. I'll always answer your question. Thank you. Fine. You got it. A huge brawl at a Riverside dock. This is in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, very much split between racial lines. You see all of these white men attacking this black man who was working on the dock. What sparked this and where the investigation is now? Well, later today, officials in Montgomery, Alabama, will hold a news conference following a brawl that broke out on a waterfront dock. This happened Saturday night when a black dock worker was trying to get a pontoon boat moved so the city's river boat could dock. This is the fight that ensued when one of those white boaters assaulted the employee. Ryan Young has the details. An altercation on a Montgomery, Alabama boat dock over the weekend between a group of white boaters and a black employee escalated into a massive brawl that resulted in multiple arrest warrants. Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed is calling for justice to be served for attacking a man who was doing his job. 
it's an unfortunate incident, and um, it's something that we're investigating right now. We'll continue to go through that process uh, before we take any additional steps. It all began when the black employee was trying to clear the dock space with the Riverside cruise, the Harriet II normally docks. The cruiser was about to return to shore and needed its space to dock. You know, just doing his job. And for some reason, they didn't like it. They didn't want to move the boat. And he decided to get physical with him. You can see in the video the black employee on the dock arguing with one of the men from the pontoon boat and then another shirtless white man charging at the employee and hitting him in the face. Soon after that, you can see several others join in on the attack of the dock employee. In some of the video, which has gone viral, with millions of views, people on the boat can be heard yelling for someone to go help the employee. Then at one point, you can see a young man who has jumped off the boat, swimming ashore to help the man who was being attacked. The boat got closer, the guys and the crew members and everybody caught off, and that's when it happened. That's the reason why when they got off the boat, they came right to that smaller boat. And that's when more fighting ensues, turning into an all-out brawl that included several people getting hit over the head with a folding chair. Soon after, officers started trying to take control, handcuffing people in the fight. You know, they were the antagonists of the whole situation, arrest them because unfortunately when things happen people of color are the first to put be put in handcuffs many questions remain about the melee that appear to be very much split across racial lines we are fully engaged and we are doing all of our due diligence to find out exactly what took place yeah one thing we know is city officials are asking actually asking anybody who had video to give it over to the police department look the witness was very clear with us they felt like this man was attacked while he was doing his job. They want to see something done, of course, today, the 2 o'clock news conference. Hopefully, we learn more about what police have been able to investigate and find out. But this is really a shockwave through the Internet when it comes to this story. People want answers, and they want them pretty quickly, especially because they do believe this was racially motivated. Well, Ryan Young, we, everyone's talking about it, and we appreciate the reporting. <laughs> Keep us posted Absolutely. on where this investigation goes. So a new study links air pollution to the rise of resistance to antibiotics. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here with a live report. Plus thousands of public city workers striking in Los Angeles today. We'll tell you what they're calling for. We'll take you live there. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A new study has found a potential link between two major health threats, air pollution and resistance to antibiotics, meaning pollution could make infectious diseases more dangerous. CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Good morning, good doctor. Um, so people might not necessarily, and by people I mean me and, and most me. other folks, okay, I may not understand the, the link between these two, so yeah. explain them. Well, so, so far, this is a, a correlation study. There's, there's no direct cause and effect here, but it's a pretty strong correlation. As you see places in the world where you have more air pollution, you also find more antimicrobial resistance. As the air pollution goes up, 
resistance goes up as well. As it goes down, resistance comes down. So it's a strong correlation. And they saw this in you know, some 166 countries around the world. So now you know, the, the deeper investigation begins. What exactly is going on here? A couple of theories. First of all, when we talk about these particles, these are tiny, right? Less than 2.5 uh, um, microns in size. To give you some idea, you know, human hair is 50 to 70 microns in size. One theory is that these particles, they're in the air. We know that they can get into our lungs and our bloodstream. They may also carry some of these bacteria around, making them more, making people more susceptible and, and increasing resistance. It could also be that there's more infections as a result of those bacteria going around, more people then using antibiotics, and that increasing resistance to those antibiotics. Don't know for sure, but, but it is a, a strong correlation, you know, these, these two seemingly unlinked things. How long has this been a problem? Yeah, you know, this is really interesting, Poppy. I mean, if people think about antibiotics, you say, well, when was penicillin even discovered? Right. And, you know, it was a, not even 100 years ago, right? I mean, so there was antibiotics before that back in 1909. Penicillin discovered in 1928, first used in 1942 because it had to go through all these trials. And within five years, you had antibiotic resistance to penicillin, wow. some, some evidence of it. So it can happen very quickly. Right now, um, there's about 18 uh, resistant bacteria or fungi that are considered serious or urgent. Uh, according to the CDC, there's three more that are on a watch list. So it's, pretty, you know, it's a pretty significant number that they're keeping an eye on. Typically, it's due to overuse of antibiotics. Use too much of it, the bacteria or the pathogens become smart, figure out how to evade it. We also overuse in farm animals, and there's often poor infection control in some parts of the world. So these things can all lead to antibiotic resistance. This air pollution link, that's, that's a new one. So Sanjay, if there is more to this uh, correlation uh, relationship, uh, this study, the researchers mm -hmm. are right, and it's more causal, and they can confirm that, how big of an impact does that have? Yeah, so, you know, I got to tell you, you know, Victor, b even before the pandemic, I, I used to put antimicrobial resistance sort of on the top of my list of, of things to keep an eye on. Um, because if you go back to 2019 even and say what was the impact at that point, 1.27 million deaths uh, responsible for associated with 5 million deaths. So people who are more vulnerable, they develop an infection, their body can't clear it, and there's not a good bacteria to do it. So that's what we were dealing with in 2019. The potential, if you fast forward going to 2050, is about 840,000 additional deaths. Now, I want to be careful here. These are modeling studies. These are projections based on what we're seeing. So you can't read completely into the numbers, but, but clearly antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance is a problem, and there's all sorts of things that can make it a, a bigger problem in the future. Yeah. All right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you very much. You got it. So nearly 50 people were rescued from vehicles trapped by downed power lines in Maryland. Severe storms have pummeled the East Coast. We'll tell you how it's impacting travel this morning. And polls are open in Ohio. Voters are deciding whether to amend the state's constitution, which could threaten abortion rights come November. We have a live report ahead. storms pushing through the south and into the northeast. Oh my God. These are not your summer type thunderstorms. Hundreds of thousands of homes without power as of Monday night. The wind was crazy. I've just never seen anything like it in my life. 
Trump's team pushing back against the special counsel's request to limit what the former president can say about the case against him. His attorneys accusing prosecutors of trying to restrict Trump's First Amendment rights. As this rhetoric becomes more inflammatory against the judge, we're now learning that she is getting more security. Words matter. You have to protect the dignity of the process. I think the judge is going to keep him on a very short leash with this stuff. Sources tell CNN House Republicans laying the groundwork for an impeachment inquiry into President Biden this fall. When you move to an impeachment inquiry, it empowers Congress to be able to get the answers they need. The American people want to know the truth, and that's what our committee's been doing. This is frivolous. This is a diversionary tactic. Bring it on. Just bring it on. Ukraine's intelligence services it foiled a Russian plot to assassinate Zelensky using an informant. Ukraine now claiming Russia has fired nearly a half a million shots at Ukraine's forces in the past seven days. Western officials are telling CNN they are getting increasingly sobering updates on Ukraine's counteroffensive. Arrest warrants have been issued in this massive brawl in Montgomery on a boat dock. Many questions remain about the melee that appear to be very much split across racial lines. He was just doing his job, and for some reason, they didn't like it. It's an unfortunate incident. It's something that shouldn't have happened, and it's something that we're investigating right now. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us. Victor Blackwell here with us all week. Good morning. Good morning. A lot to get to, especially that video that everyone is it's talking unbelievable. about. It's unbelievable, and it's creating memes uh, across right. the Internet. So we'll get into those, They're too. investigating. Uh, but we start with really severe weather this morning. Many communities on the East Coast bracing for more storms after a powerful system ravaged the region on Monday, killing at least two people, leaving hundreds of thousands in the dark. Wind gusts up to 75 miles an hour snapped this tree in half in North Carolina. And Indiana residents are waking to the debris left behind after a tornado touched down there. Look at this. In Maryland, police say that these downed electrical poles left 47 people trapped in their cars until the power lines could be de-energized. Good news here. No injuries reported. Now in central Pennsylvania, a lightning strike caused this workshop to burn to the ground. CNN's Pete Montine joins us live from Reagan National Airport. And, of course, these storms are having an impact on travel. Talk to us about the airlines. You're seeing the impact, Victor. Uh, the spillover into today. You know, a lot of folks impacted by these cancellations and delays yesterday. 10,000 flights impacted. No doubt, a lot of folks trying to get on flights again today after they were bumped yesterday. The big numbers are 1,700 cancellations just yesterday. That means that that is the top five in the top five for cancellations since Memorial Day. We are already seeing cancellations piled up today. Just check FlightAware. We've seen about 300 cancellations so far today, but the really big number from yesterday are the delays. 8,800 flights delayed. That is a third of all flights scheduled in the U.S. delayed yesterday, averaging about an hour and 10 minutes late to their destination. So a lot of misery for a lot of people as they tried to get out on flights on the East Coast. The worst airports, Atlanta, Charlotte, 
Reagan National, LaGuardia, and Newark. Those are some really big hubs. Atlanta, the single biggest hub for Delta Airlines, the busiest airport in the world, and it is apologizing to customers after it delayed about 1,300 flights yesterday, a third of all of its flights scheduled. It says it's working to get its schedule back on track, but here is the warning from the FAA. We could still see ground stops as the day goes on in places like Florida and Orlando and Fort Lauderdale in Miami and in New England at big airports like Boston. So we're not totally out of the woods just yet, Victor. Pete, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank wishing, you, Pete. Wishing people smooth on-time flights. It's been yeah, a rocky few days. They can get them. All right, we're keeping a close watch on Fulton County, Georgia, where there are new signs that indictments could be coming in the alleged scheme by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the election. We're now learning the former lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, has been subpoenaed to testify to the grand jury in the case. Here's what he told our Wolf Blitzer. Yeah, I'll be there to answer the facts as I know them and to continue this process of trying to discover what actually happened during that post-election period of time. Uh, uh, certainly, we can never repeat that as a country. Uh, certainly, I never want to see that happen in my home state of Georgia. A lot of good people's lives were uprooted. Uh, a lot of people's reputations have been soiled. Nick Valencia is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Nick, uh, the uh, DA there, Fannie Willis, said that the work was accomplished. They're ready to go. So why subpoenas now? Well, we know that Duncan was testifying or had to testify in front of the special purpose grand jury, and now the Fulton County grand jury wants to hear from him. It's perhaps just the latest indication that this sprawling investigation is wrapping up. And while Lieutenant Governor, the Republican, Jeff Duncan, who has been a harsh critic of President Trump, he was the president of the Georgia State Senate. It's the same state Senate where former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani appeared in front of three times to spread conspiracy theories and election interference lies. Previously, uh, Duncan has said that those were unofficial meetings, that he did not sanction them. He's even gone so far as to call them an embarrassment. So now he's one of three people who have been subpoenaed by the Fulton County Grand Jury, the other being former state Democratic Senator Jen Jordan, who appeared at those meetings uh, where Giuliani made his presentations. The third is Atlanta independent journalist George Cheedy, who back in 2020 stumbled into the room where fake electors were having their meeting. In an interview with me last week, he says he believes they were trying to conceal something from him when they told him it was an education meeting. And in his words, they frog-marched him out of the room. So these three subpoenas, along with the dramatic increase in security around the Fulton County Courthouse, perhaps the strongest indications yet that this sprawling investigation, which has been going on for more than a year, is perhaps close to an end. Victor? Nick, Nick Valencia for us there outside the courthouse. Thank you. Yeah. Nick, thanks. Behind the scenes on Capitol Hill, many House Republicans are privately saying it's a foregone conclusion that President Biden will face an impeachment inquiry this fall. That's according to really fascinating reporting from our own Manu Raju that Speaker McCarthy has been insistent to reporters a decision has not been made yet to open a formal inquiry and evidence is still being gathered. Here's what he said last night on Fox. I raised it on this show not long ago that because the actions of the Biden administration withholding information, that that would rise to the level where we would need impeachment inquiry to give the strength of the Congress to get the information that we need to give to the American public and follow through on our constitutional authority. All that right, is exactly what we're doing, and that's exactly what we'll continue to do. Manu Rashi, live on Capitol Hill. Manu, what's your reporting on this? Walk us through it. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, the Republicans in the House have been investigating the Biden family really since the beginning of this Congress. But now is the time, according to a number of Republicans that we have spoken to, that they believe an official impeachment inquiry will be launched in the fall. Now, the Speaker has not officially said that or made an official decision yet, but all signs are pointing to that as Republicans are trying to make the case that Joe Biden, as vice president, engaged in a pay-to-play scheme with his son, Hunter Biden, and Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings. Now, they have not have evidence yet to prove that very provocative claim, but they have turned up evidence showing that Hunter Biden tried to use his dad as leverage as part of his business efforts. There was a testimony last week from a former Hunter Biden business associate that said that Joe Biden was on the phone some 20 times as speaker on the speakerphone when Hunter Biden was meeting with those foreign associates. Now, there was no business discussed at those meetings, and the Republicans don't yet have evidence to show that Joe Biden profited or acted in any official official capacity to help Hunter Biden end those business dealings, but they are saying that an impeachment inquiry could help them gather that evidence because it would strengthen their oversight posture, especially if they are in court trying to get some key records. Now, James Comer, who is the oversight chairman who has been leading this investigation, indicated over the weekend to us in Kentucky that more bank records would be part of this committee's focus, and they plan to release that to detail Hunter Biden's business dealings in the weeks ahead. This next week, we will release more bank records. We'll do our third bank memo, where we uh, show some uh, interesting wire transfers and some suspicious bank activity that I think the American people will have a lot of questions about. Now, the political calendar also dictating this as well. Republicans indicating that if they do not move forward with an impeachment inquiry now after all this investigation, it will essentially clear Joe Biden, potentially boost him politically, which is the reason why many expect that official probe to begin this fall. Democrats believe this is all an effort to try to hurt Joe Biden politically. They, they, they say there's no evidence to back up any of their most salacious claims here. The White House calling this a partisan political stunt. But that is the battle line that is being drawn right now is Republicans making clear what their intentions are in the months ahead. It could also hurt some uh, Republicans politically, politically, those who have been elected in districts that Biden won. I mean, the, the conference is more than just the Freedom Caucus. Does McCarthy have the votes to move forward with this? Yeah, that is going to be the real challenger because there are those 18 House Republicans from districts that Joe Biden carried. And there's only a majority in which Kevin McCarthy can lose no more than four Republican votes on any party line vote. So therein lies the challenge here. But uh, the, in talking to some of those members in those swing districts, they are not sold yet that an impeachment inquiry is necessary. Joe, Don, Don Bacon, who represents one of those swing districts from Nebraska, told me he, he supports a current ongoing probes, not an official inquiry, impeachment inquiry yet. Given how high a bar it is if to impeach someone for high, charging them with high crimes or with misdemeanors, if Joe Biden is faced with that, that would be just the fourth time a president has faced that in history. Donald Trump, of course, was impeached twice. So it is a very significant bar. A lot of the members are not quite ready to go there just yet. But if an official inquiry is launched, the expectation among House Republicans is that they will eventually go to vote on articles of impeachment. Because as one House Republican told us, once you let the horses out of the barn, it's hard to get the horses back in the barn, especially on something as, as significant as this. Yeah. No, no question, Manu. Thanks very much.
Right now, the polls are open in Ohio. Voters will decide whether they can still amend the state's constitution with a simple majority vote. Now, the Republican State House wants to change that by requiring amendments to get 60% of the vote instead of 50% plus one. It's been a simple majority for more than a century. So why is this on the ballot now? Well, one reason is access to abortion. It's not on the ballot today, but it will be in November, and it raises the threshold uh, that would make it harder to pass an abortion rights amendment. CNN's Daniel Strauss is covering this one for us. So you have a piece on this on CNN.com. You write this vote puts Ohio at the center of the abortion rights debate, although technically it is not on the ballot. Explain what we're watching today and the perspectives on, on this vote. Well, first, we're watching various interest groups. We want to see the turnout among women. We want to see the turnout among suburban voters. And we want to see, of course, the turnout among both registered Republicans and Democrats. And again, the question here is, on the surface, how much of this to Ohio voters is about abortion? Uh, the the opposition, the, the organizations opposing um, uh, keeping the threshold where it is now in, uh, are a mixed of groups. It's the NRA. It is uh, abortion or anti-abortion activists. It is uh, 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 police organizations. But at the same time, the premise for this, the real trigger for this vote uh, is that the, the looming vote in November over uh, adding abortion protections to the state constitution. And we're going to see in both exit polls and interviews today how much of that was on voters' minds. Does this thing pass so they makes it harder to change the state constitution? What do you think? Well, let, well first, uh, I want to premise that I'm terrible at predictions, and as a reporter, uh, th that's not my specialty. But uh, I'm hearing from the uh, activists, the, the pro-choice activists, yeah. that they are very optimistic about today and that their opponents are starting to pivot toward November and that November vote. Yeah, when they would take up um, the abortion issue as a ballot measure. Thanks, Daniel, yeah. for the reporting. Sorry to put you Thanks on so the much. spot. Appreciate it. You're all good. Joining us now, Ashley Allison, CNN political commentator, former White House senior policy advisor under President Obama. Joe Pinion, a Republican strategist, and Ellie Honig is back with us uh, as well. Joe, let's start here in Ohio. If the line was from Republicans after Dobbs, send it back to the states. Let states decide. Why not let states decide under the rules as they were? It seems that if this is in the framework of abortion rights going into November, changing the rules, changing the threshold would, would defy that. Look, I, I think it's, it's consistent with it, but at the same time, I do think that it also does you know, call into question a little bit of gamesmanship, right? Are you trying to change the rules midstream? So certainly the state legislatures, uh, the voters of that state do have the right to make those types of decisions. The issue is that why you change it now after 100 years? I would argue uh, that perhaps the issue is that as politics becomes more contentious, uh, that we should make it at least a little bit more than 50 plus one mm -hmm. uh, for us to be going back and forth on this seesaw, depending on what the kind of the trends are of the day. So, uh, look, I think I could see it both ways, but certainly uh, I think, again, it is fair to question the timing of why, the of why Republican, I mean, because let me read you what the Republican Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, said, who's running for U.S. Senate, by the way. Um, he said issue number one, quote, is 100 percent about keeping a radical pro-abortion amendment out of our Constitution. Yeah. Um, how huge is this? We'll see what happens in Ohio. Yeah. But 
as it pertains to nationally, other states looking to Ohio on this? Well, Ohio is my home state. Yeah. I'm from it. I'm my beloved state. You know, Ohio has often been ground zero for voting rights. I think what's interesting is that this is a special election. Back in January, the state legislature said they didn't want special elections in August because turnout was so low and it really didn't um, showcase the will of the people. So to do this in August and then actually have the issue when come up. When there's no candidates on the Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Think about how hard it is to organize to get people out. I was just back in Ohio. It's not like when you see a normal campaign and you see uh, yard signs and, and commercials all over the air. This is really people having to pay attention to what's going on in their local politics. And I think this can be a tactic that's used in other uh, um states across the, the country to say, like, we can do special elections to get ballot initiatives to go one way or the other. So I'm interested to see what is going to happen. I, I saw my mom put her special uh, uh, early vote and vote by mail ballot in. Um, and I know that a lot of grassroots organizers have done the work, but it, it will be interesting to see the outcome. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, to that point, right, we see this from all parties, right? I mean, right now in the state of New York, we've got the state legislature basically trying to uh, redraw the lines in between the actual 10-year period based off of, you know, some bizarre notions. So I think we should just get to some basic ground rules. Are we against people trying to gerrymander voters and allow politicians to pick who votes for them? Are we against uh, people trying to game the system to achieve an outcome through a legislative uh, process that they want on their own terms? Uh, yes or no, but let's draw that line the sign and put the politics to the We're going to move on, Trump. I just yeah. say, I think that what's happening in New York and the redrawing is because of what a court said. It was sent it back to them. Well, to I mean, no, that'd be the, it's, a, it's a little bit more complicated. It's a very but, complex but, court yeah. fight. One thing we're, we're seeing, I think, increasingly with voting rights issues, with, with the abortion issue, is we're so focused. You're taught through school. It's Congress, US, the U.S. Senate, mm -hmm. the U.S. House of Representatives, but so much of the real action happens in the state houses. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to uh, Trump and specifically the former lieutenant governor in uh, Georgia. What does he offer now, considering what we heard from the uh, DA there? Work's done. It's accomplished. We're ready to go. Yeah, what does he offer at this point? It's a good question. I texted him. He wouldn't say anything more than he said on air. Yeah. Um, look, he was the lieutenant uh, governor in Georgia when this effort to steal the 2020 election was happening. It's important to know. In that capacity, he presided over the state Senate, and that was the locus for some of what's being investigated here. Rudy Giuliani went in front of the Georgia state Senate and made a string of unequivocally false statements. There is no debate. He claimed, made wild accusations of voter fraud. Rudy Giuliani, we know, has been sent a target letter by the Fulton County DA. So speculating a bit here, but it's consistent with what Jeff Duncan has said publicly and, and where the Fulton County DA has been looking. So there's this video. Do we have it? Are we able to show it of um, President Biden with the mug? And there, there you yeah, see the dark it. Brandon mug. Victor understands this better. You go. Yeah. So this is apparently his um, alter ego is born out of what was supposed to be this derogatory chant. Let's go, Brandon. And then he his campaign has adapted this and they sell it w with merchandising. The Trump lawyers in the uh, decision over how much control will be placed over in this protective order fight over yeah. uh, the uh, January 6th investigation say that that is a thinly veiled reference to the indictment 
and that it's, I guess it's happening on both sides when the special counsel referenced, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Know, you. Yeah. Ellie never looks confused. No, I, and I, you am, look I do look confused. genuinely confused because, this morning. Because I, that's a, that feels like a stretch to me. But that's, that's the question. <laughs> yeah. More than is it there, this judge is going to get tired of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's also irrelevant to the legal issue if, if Joe Biden's saying nice or mean things offline. He's not a party to this lawsuit. The question is whether Donald Trump, who is a party to this lawsuit, and let's remember, has absolutely a First Amendment right to speak about his case, to campaign. That's legitimate. But he's the one whose conduct, the concern is, could potentially influence witnesses or a jury. Joe Biden's conduct is, is a sideshow. It doesn't matter. Look, I love every time Dark Brandon comes out. It's hilarious. <laughs> it often is a zinger when something goes wrong on the Republican side. But I agree with Ellie. It's a stretch. Um, Trump should just focus on not being on social media, doing very direct threats to judges, to potential uh, witnesses. And, you know, I, I love it. I think it's great. And I think the campaign is right on mark when they do it. Oh, look, I, I think it is reasonable. Uh, again, protective order is pretty common. I think it is reasonable to ask the question uh, or have it proposed to the Trump defense team uh, that certain materials cannot be disclosed. They have that in writing, certainly. Uh, we know that President Trump, uh, the ink was not dry on the settlement uh, that he had uh, for the alleged sexual, sexual assault. Uh, and all of a sudden, he was still continuing with the same type of rhetoric. So I think that is reasonable. I think what Republicans would push back on and say is unreasonable is saying that a kind of one-worded sentence uh, all of a sudden is equatable to saying that there is a threat to witnesses or a threat to the judges. I think that's where people say, you got to really want it to look at that sentence and try to make that inference. Just to be clear, though, like, this is the Democrats flipping a joke that they tried to put on they created the I'm dark not evoking dark as, dark branding a, as know, some type of legal so, issue. I, uh, <laughs> you know, you guys. Keep well, it up. We did that this morning. Here it is. Dark branding. All right, thank you, Ashley and Joe and Ellie. Thousands of public city workers are striking in Los Angeles today. We're going to tell you what they're calling for and how long this strike might last. And a mother is suing Southwest Airlines for racial discrimination. She says she was accused of human trafficking when traveling with her biracial child. That mother joins us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So a mother is suing Southwest Airlines for racial discrimination. She says she was accused of human trafficking when flying with her biracial child. Her name is Mary McCarthy, who is white. She traveled from California to Denver with her daughter, who is biracial, to attend her brother's funeral in October of 2021. This is according to a new lawsuit filed this week. And here's what the suit alleges, quote, while they were in the air, a Southwest employee called the Denver Police Department to report Ms. McCarthy for suspected child trafficking for no reason other than the different color of her daughter's skin from her own. Now, according to this lawsuit, as McCarthy and her daughter were walking on the jet bridge, and this is video of that, by the way, they were confronted by Denver police officers. After significant questioning, McCarthy was eventually allowed to leave by the officers, quote, and this is in the lawsuit, but not before this display of blatant racism by Southwest Airlines caused Ms. McCarthy and her daughter extreme and emotional distress. I appreciate her being with us. I just want to show you first, though, part of this recorded interaction that uh, she had when they got off the plane with a Southwest official and Denver police officers. Here it is. 
The flight attendants were just concerned about about the behavior okay, when you boarded the aircraft. But uh, okay. that's all we're following up on. We're not sus we're not suspecting anything. That's all we need to know. That I mean, you guys are good. I do if apologize. It's not, it's not because I have a daughter who has already, unfortunately, been traumatized by police in, in her life. Well, and, yeah, I'm, sure and, and I'm not trying to do that by any stretch no. of the means. So this is this isn't so. okay. At the time, Southwest said they were, quote, disheartened by her account of the events, adding in part, we are conducting a review of the situation internally. Our employees undergo robust training on human trafficking. Above all, Southwest Airlines prides itself on providing a welcoming and inclusive environment. We did, of course, reach out to a Southwest spokesperson again, given this litigation. They had no comment. Mary McCarthy, the mother, joins us now. Good morning. I appreciate you being with us. Why did you file suit? What do you want? When I initially spoke out about this back in October of 2021, the reason I went public with it, um, which, you know, takes a certain risk, you know, in, in the meantime, my daughter and I, our names have been dragged through the mud. We've re received a lot of backlash, but it was really because um, this is an opportunity for me to speak out against racial profiling. If one less family, one less child can go through an experience with the airlines or elsewhere in life and not be racially profiled, to me, it's worth speaking out. It's all about yeah. um, the crux of the matter, which is in 2021, now 2023, no corporation should be able to get away with this kind of behavior. I, I read through the, the lawsuit that you're seeking unspecified damages and you want an apology from the airline and you want mandatory training to change. What's the ultimate goal here? What do you hope at the end of this changes for other people? So I hear, um, you know, on a regular basis from other parents who go through this, families like mine that are mixed race for a number of reasons, whether it's their biological, uh, children happen to look a little bit different from them in terms of skin color, lots of families who have adopted uh, children. And this is happening quite regularly, more often, I'd say, to fathers than to mothers, where uh, they are sometimes pulled off of flights or very aggressively questioned, sometimes even separated and detained. The parents and the children simply due to largely a difference in skin color. This is racial profiling. It has no place in the United States of today. And that's what I'm speaking out against. The airlines are teaching their staff to look out for human trafficking, child trafficking on airlines. But clearly that training is failing if they're not as mm. part of that training, also warning them to look out for their own behavior and racial profiling. And by the way, child trafficking and human trafficking is not an epidemic on commercial flights. That's, we, you know, like a moral panic. Trafficking isn't something that we have to worry about on commercial yeah. flights too much. So how about I, focus on reducing racism more than on some of these kind of boogeyman type of moral panics that they've got all worried about? I, I did read a statistic that you're correct that most of the human trafficking does not happen on airlines, but it, it was pointed to in one study around 38 percent. I do want to read to you what the International Air Transportation Association said in terms of their guidelines for, for combating human trafficking. And they say cabin crew are in a unique position to notify law enforcement uh, because they, quote, travel with passengers sometimes for many hours. They can spot the smallest signals and behaviors. But they also go on to say that the you know, you need to defer to another person um, not to speak for them. The, I, my question to you is, do you think it could have been an honest mistake by one person? Honest mistakes happen. I'm deeply sympathetic to anyone doing their job. Um, I'm 
not only a mother to a biracial child, but I've always been a single mother. So I'm very careful when I travel that I always take documentation. I carry her birth certificate. Mm-hmm. I'm prepared to show my ID and her birth certificate at TSA. They have the right to ask me any questions. They can ask me questions about race because frankly, that's a physical difference. It's a reality. But there's a big difference between TSA doing the screening that they're that they're doing as part of their job mm-hmm. and a flight attendant not even taking the time to ask me a question, find out if we have the same last name, the basic due diligence before they call the police. Uh, You can see in the body cam footage that that they they lie about numerous things. The, the, The Southwest attendance is heard on the body cam footage repeatedly lying about why I was traveling, saying that I lied about the fact that I was traveling to a funeral. Like that's appalling behavior towards one of your customers on any level. And I feel like the public should know that this is a, how they're treating and talking about their customers. And um, I want to build awareness around all of that. And as I understand, you said you travel with the birth certificate of your daughter and you were not even asked to present that as proof. Just before we go, your daughter's 12 now. We hear her tears in that video. How is she today? Fortunately, she's doing great. She's a blossoming 12-year-old going into seventh grade. Um, But when it comes to this incident, just after it and up until now, about a year and a half later, she clams up and doesn't want to talk about Mm -hmm. it. Of course, I did what any responsible mom would do. I made sure that she got uh, a therapist to talk to about this because it was also the day that we were traveling to my brother's funeral so she could deal with the grief of that. And uh, fortunately, she is doing great. She knows that I'm speaking to the media. She supports that. Mm -hmm. But of course, uh, she herself is doing the things that a 12-year-old girl is supposed to do and not have to worry about stuff like this on a daily basis. And hopefully moving forward, less and less for, for kids like her. They, children of color have enough challenges in their day-to-day life. Let's not add to it. Yeah, well, we appreciate you sharing your story. I'm sorry also for the loss of your, your brother. And we welcome anyone from Southwest Airlines, of course, on the program to join us as well. Mary, thank you. Thanks, Poppy. Yep, Victor. Well, new overnight, the teenage cousin of the Uvalde shooter arrested now for allegedly threatening to, quote, do the same thing to a school. We have those details ahead. This morning, court documents show a teenage cousin of the Uvalde school shooter has been arrested after he allegedly made threats to do the same thing. 17-year-old Nathan James Cruz faces two charges of making terroristic threats to a public place and to a family member. San Antonio police tell the New York Times that he's the cousin of the gunman who killed 19 children, two teachers at Robb Elementary, in May of last year. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us live from Dallas. So authorities, obviously, as they should, take this uh, seriously. Tell us what happened. And more importantly, it was the family members who took this extremely serious. According to the arrest warrant affidavit for Nathan James Cruz, San Antonio police were called by his mother uh, yesterday morning where she went on to describe uh, that uh, her son had, quote, planned to do the same thing as his cousin who carried out the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, which is just west of San Antonio, where 19 children and two teachers were killed in May of 2022. 
And in the uh, conversation that the mother and sister had with police, that was documented in this arrest warrant affidavit. Uh, investigators also say uh, that the sister had been driving with uh, Cruz in a car and that he threatened her, saying uh, that, uh, that he would shoot the school. Now, this family and the mother were concerned because uh, she says her son is uh, on probation, uh, lived near a school, although the documents do, do not identify which school it is there in San Antonio, and that she had also overheard a conversation that her son had with someone as he was trying to make an illegal purchase for an AR-15 firearm. Now, investigators took uh, Nathan James Cruz into custody. In these court documents, uh, Cruz denied making these threats but investigators there in San Antonio have charged the 17-year-old with a felony count of making terroristic threats to a public place, as well as a misdemeanor charge for making terroristic threats of his family. And right now, he's being held on a $160,000 bond in the Bear County Jail in San Antonio. Victor? Good. The family and police are being proactive about this. Ed Lavendero for us there. Thanks. First, the writers and the actors, and now thousands of Los Angeles public workers are striking today. We'll take you live to the picket line. So how do Americans feel about these strikes? Harry Enton is here with this morning's number. Happening right now, more than 11,000 Los Angeles city workers are on strike. Picket lines already forming in the front of City Hall, also at LAX International Airport. You've got sanitation workers, traffic officers, engineers, and others walking off the job. And this adds to the strikes already taking place in California by the actors and writers and other strikes across the U.S. this summer. Lucy Kafanoff joins us from the picket lines at LAX. Lucy, good morning. What are they asking for? Good morning, Poppy. It is being referred to as the hot labor summer here at LAX Airport. The workers, the union workers, are taking a much-deserved breakfast break. Everyone's got to eat, but earlier they were marching up and down sort of this area, the picket lines going up way before dawn, both here at LAX Airport and also at City Hall, where we are expecting a rally later in the day. Um, the SEIU Local 721 Union uh, said its members voted to authorize this walkout because they say the city has failed uh, to bargain in good faith and also, they say, engaged in unfair uh, labor practices that restricted employee and union rights. Here is the union president, David Green. Take a listen. Angelinos can't go about their daily life without our workers, right? Whether you're flying in and out of LAX or it's animal services or street services or filling in potholes, that's the work that our members do. We're fabric of the community. We affect your life on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think people, not just 7 to 1, that we've reached the breaking point where people are saying, look, I'm not going to be taken for granted. Now, the Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass pushed back against this notion that uh, the city has not been willing to bargain. She said in a statement that an array of services will still continue today during this uh, one-day strike. She said, and I quote, the city of Los Angeles is not going to shut down. My office is implementing a plan to ensure ensuring no public safety or housing and homelessness emergency operations are impacted by this action. Like I said over the weekend, the city will always be available to make progress with SEIU 721, and we will 
will continue bargaining in good faith. And this is, Poppy, as you pointed out, just the latest strike to take over Los Angeles. We saw uh, Hollywood writers protesting, striking since May, actors joining them last month. Uh, Los Angeles hotel workers have been staging walkouts all summer. A lot of these cumulatively are in response to wages that haven't kept up with inflation, also the sky-high uh, cost of living here in Los Angeles. But in terms of folks who are going to be directly impacted by these strikes today, at least here at LAX Airport, you know, when they say to get to the airport early, definitely something you want to take seriously on a day like this, Poppy. That's a great point. Uh, Lucy, thank you very much for the reporting. All right, with more now on how Americans feel about these recent strikes and labor unions, we are joined now by CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. All right, what's the big number? All right, this morning's number is 323,000 plus. Over 323,000 plus workers have gone on strike this year already. That is the third highest figure this century. And keep in mind, it's only August as this strike summer continues on and as we go into fall, don't be surprised if this number does in fact go higher and it could be the most workers on strike in a year this entire century. And you know, you mentioned how Americans are feeling about labor unions. And one thing that's really interesting is the Americans who approve of labor unions, look at where we are in 2022, last year, the latest figure available, 71%. That is significantly higher than where we were back in 2012, a decade ago, when it was just 52%. And in fact, this 71%, get this, you go back to 2002, 1991, 1981, it is the highest figure of labor approval in this country since 1965. So the American public is on the side of unions more so than it's been at any point in recent history. And what share of workers now are in a union? That's so interesting. I think the spike in a, like a support for them, but what share are in them? Yeah, so we sort of have this inverse action going on here, Poppy. As unions have become more popular, fewer and fewer U.S. workers are in fact in a union. Look at this, in 2022, it was just 10%. That's down from 2012 when it was 11%. At the beginning of this century, it was 14%. You just see this trend line where it's going down, down, down. Look at where we were 51 years ago. 27% of U.S. workers were in a union. We are down 17 points. Nearly only about a third of as many U.S. workers are in a union. And more than that, look at the face of unions. Who are the people who are in our union? So how many workers are in a union? We have seen a significant shift in this number. So high school graduates are less. In the 1970s, it was 24%. Look at that. It's just a third. It's now yeah. 8%. While we really haven't seen much of a change in the postgraduates, it was 20, 22% in the 1970s, it's still 18%. So unions now are much more white collar than they are blue collar. Mm. That is a significant shift from where we were, say, yeah. 50 years ago when it was much more blue collar than white collar. Yeah, some dramatic shifts there. Harry Enton, thank you. Thank you. So President Biden waking up today in Arizona where he will announce a new national monument surrounding the Grand Canyon. We'll tell you what's behind the move ahead. President Biden in Arizona this morning, he's going to designate nearly a million acres of land near the Grand Canyon as a new national monument. The area is considered sacred to native tribes and indigenous people. Biden is taking this step in order to prevent uranium extraction on that land. In 2012, former President Obama banned new uranium extraction, but the ban is, is set to expire later this year. So by Biden designating the land a national monument, it will make the ban permanent. 
Biden also plans to announce a $44 million investment to, quote, strengthen climate resistance across our national park system. Joining us now is CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Bill, um, the significance of this uh, announcement and protecting these lands. It's, a, it's something Native tribes have been calling for and environmentalists have been calling for for generations now. It was largely off limits to uranium mining now. Uh, nuclear power is having a bit of a resurgence, but it's not as popular as it was in the 50s when there were people were clamoring for it. Uh, there's a big Native American voting block in the West, obviously. In Arizona, that's a key swing vote for him there as well. So this makes good on promises. Uh, Deb Holland, the first Native American mm -hmm. Interior Secretary, says they finally have a seat at the table. What's interesting is there's other fights over other lands around minerals needed for electrification. Thacker Pass up on the Nevada-Oregon border, a lot of lithium there. Tribes are resistant to exploiting that. Uh, there's a big copper mine in Arizona that's meeting some tribal resistance. So it's sort of where you look in the West is this tension between sacred lands, protecting wilderness, and demands for a new kind of mineral to fuel this new economy. One of the things Biden is going to do today also is designate more money to protect these lands against climate change. You spent a lot of time there. You were at one point rafting down the Colorado River. Talk about what they are seeing, the impact. Well, the drought is the most obvious one. Uh, this record snow m fall in the Sierras is a nice relief, and this in the Rockies as well will take some of that pressure off. But the West has lost the equivalent of what Lake Mead holds, you know, in, a, in our, less than our lifetimes. And that's not being fixed anytime soon. So water is the big resiliency part of that. Uh, they're actually paying one tribe around uh, the Gila Bend tribal area to not use their water rights in order to preserve more as well there. But then there's just the incredible heat that we've seen now. This year, we're seeing more deaths in national parks uh, than any other year before. It's about five right now, uh, just due to extreme heat. That's something that's going to play into our, our public lands going forward. But yeah, there's this great tension now that we have Biden ran on a promise not to exploit, not to drill or frack on national lands and, and federal lands. He had to break that promise, upset a lot of his climate supporters. So there's some tension there. In Alaska. Well. In, in Alaska, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Can we turn back to the heat? I mean, sure. it has been stifling yes. this summer, especially July. I read July, officially the hottest month on record. Uh, average global temperature, uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, warmer than the threshold scientists have warned against. The consequences of this, not just the discomfort, not just, I mean, it's dangerous. People have been burned on sidewalks, but for the environment, for our, our globe, the, the impact. Well, you got to think about everything that we take for granted, our migrating birds in our backyards, the, you know, the pollinating bugs, the, our crop cycles, the rainfall patterns, all of this came to be in a Goldilocks sweet spot of temperature on yeah. planet Earth. And we're moved beyond that. Uh, Copernicus, the European Space Agency, is reporting now July hit 1.5. That is the target we were hoping to avoid with the Paris Accords now. And so they'll be overshoot. They'll be, they'll be back as that average temperature fluctuates. But this is the new world we've created for ourselves. and We have to adapt to it. Well, what you said we've created for ourselves yeah. is key. And, and, and we can control how bad it gets yeah, going forward. That's exactly right. Bill Weir, thank you very much. All right, a golden retriever in San Diego has proven that dogs are indeed man's best friend, even if the man is stealing from you. <laughs> I love you, too. <laughs> I love you, too, buddy guy. Oh. Well, um, Bill.
Because you're the coolest dog I've ever known. I love you too. Yeah. You're a sweetheart. I love you too. <laughs> the laugh gets me every time. Uh, so this dog is not with its owner. This is a dog and a man allegedly stealing from the dog's owner. This golden retriever in California proven you could be friends with anybody, even a suspected thief. San Diego police shared this video of the theft from last month. Uh, just as the suspect was about to ride off with this $1,300 e-bike, he put it on its kickstand and offered some belly rubs to the dog along with some unsolicited advice for its owner. Where's your dad? Here's your dad. She's not enough. Leave your garage open. No arrests have been made. Police are asking the public to call if they know anything that could identify the suspect. We watched that about 10 times in the break. You know what? I think we're reading this wrong. Why? Everybody thinks this dog is playing with the guy. He's trying to get every angle of that face for there the camera. There you go, giving him more time. I want you Smart. to stay here till dad gets home. And if not, I want to see every angle that, of that face. That's one smart pooch. Yeah. It was smart what? Pooch. That's pooch. what you okay. call a dog. All right. I don't have also, a dog. All right. I do. Okay. See you tomorrow. CNN New Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.